Box 13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie, The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know this business I'm in can get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. <laughs> Someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this small. OCR Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob welcoming you to another edition of Movie Star Detectives and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. This episode is from May 5th, 1950. The episode is entitled The Lewis Spence Case. Now, I don't you normally go into deep dives onto any particular show that I do unless there's some information to impart, but this is one of my favorite Richard Diamond private detective shows, and it's because of an actor named Stanley Waxman who plays the insane... Very crazy bomber, and Richard Diamond has to talk him down from a bomb that he's wearing on his person. And he is literally holding the police station at highest hostage. And I have to say, if you listen to Stanley Waxman, the actor who plays Lewis Spence, you'll notice a very strong similarity to the actor we know 
or new as Gene Wilder from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and a bunch of other movies. I looked up Stanley Waxman on Wikipedia and there's a photo of him and he looks very much like Gene Wilder. Stanley Waxman didn't have the crazy hair that Gene Wilder had, but other than that, facially, they look very similar, and their voices are even more dead on. If you compare the voice of Gene Wilder to this actor, Stanley Waxman, in this particular episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, you'll notice that it's a strong similarity between their voices. The, the phraseology that they use and the intensity that they use and just everything about Stanley Waxman's voice reminds me of Gene Wilder. And Stanley Waxman was born in uh, 1914 and died in 1998. So both both actors existed at the same time, and, uh, nearly. Although Gene Wilder wasn't born in 1914, but anyway, <laughs> I just I just think that they sound so much alike. It's very uncanny, and yet the actor never appeared in another. Richard Diamond Private Detective show, but he was definitely a special guest star on the show because Stanley Waxman had done a number of movies, not starring roles, but in supporting roles. So anyway, so enjoy this episode of Richard Diamond Private Detective, and after that, it's the lives of Harry Lyon from November 23rd, 1951. The episode is entitled entitled Horseplay, and then The Saint from April 29th, 1951, and the episode is entitled Fishes Gotta Eat, and The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from January 29th, 1949, the episode is entitled Easy Mark, and Box 13 from January 30th, 1948, the episode is entitled Look Pleasant, Please. And then I'm going to throw in a Sam Shovel episode entitled The Curbstone Murder from December 2nd, 1948. Enjoy all these, and I'll see you all back here next week, God willing, and the creeks don't rise. Broadcasting Company presents Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Mr. Diamond, the reason you're here is because I want someone to talk to the mayor. I don't know whether it was explained to you or not, but unless his honor is done away with himself by noon, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Including yourself. Oh, that doesn't really matter. You see, in making my escape, a guard attempted to stop me. I had to kill him. Here's another exciting half hour with Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell.
I'm a detective agency. There's no corpse like an old corpse. Oh, Rick, that's awful. Yeah, but what am I going to do? I can't be witty and handsome at the same time. Well, don't be greedy. Just concentrate on one of them. Oh, you're pretty nothing today. Why don't you come on over and we'll both try and improve? Shame on you. You know I've got to work. Oh, have you got a client? Well, not yet, but I've set bear traps all the way down the hall. Well, now that's... How can you be sure you'll catch a client? Well, I can't be, but, oh, I get so lonesome up here with no one to talk to. It's fun setting broken legs. <laughs> You're impossible. Diamond! Oh, my gosh. What's wrong, Rick? Those traps. I think I've caught something terrible. Hmm? Diamond, I gotta talk to you. Who is it, Rick? Sergeant Otis. Says he's gotta talk to me, but I'll be darned if I'll teach him how. Oh, say hello for me. Uh, Helen says hello, Otis. Tell her hello, then get off the phone. This is serious. Hey, what's with you? Somebody steal your catnip? Can't you stop being funny, Shamus? I mean it. This is serious. Helen, I'll call you back. Why, something wrong? Well, Otis looks worried, and he's making sense for the first time in 11 years. Oh, well, call me later and tell me about it. Bye. Bye. Now, Sergeant, what's on your personal I want mind? you to come down to the station with me in a hurry. Of course, you'll think this is a silly question, but why? You remember Louis Spence? Louis Spence? About four years ago. Caught him running around sticking dynamite under the homes of some of our city officials. Oh, yeah, yeah. Socialistic nut. Put him away, didn't they? Yeah, crazy as they come. Well, he's out. What do you mean, he's out? If they cured his head, he'd still face a lot of years up the river. Oh, he ain't cured. Not a bit he ain't cured. You mean he busted out? Yesterday. Now, do me a favor and come on down to the station. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute and take it easy. What's going down to the station got to do with Lewis Spence? He's down there with the lieutenant. Well, great. Put them both in fancy jackets and send them home. We can't. He walked in 20 minutes ago and asked to see the lieutenant. I didn't recognize him, so I let him in. Now we can't get him out. Well, why the devil can't you? He won't let us in, and he won't let the lieutenant out. He's sitting there holding a big bomb, and it's ready to go off. It looks like a convention. Everyone's trying to think of something to well, do. Why is Spence doing this? What's he going to do? Just sit in there? You'll really get a boot out of this, Shamus. If the mayor don't jump off the top of the city hall by noon, Spence blows up the whole 5th precinct. What? That's right. Hey, Otis, get Diamond in there. It's 11 o'clock. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Rick. What do you mean, get me in there? Didn't you tell him, Otis? No, I ain't had time. Well, come on, come on. Why me? What do you want me in there for? Spence wants someone Levinson can give direction to. He says no cop. Levinson buzzed out and told us to get hold of you. Okay. Uh, wait a minute. Talk to the lieutenant on the intercom. Spence won't know who's walking through the door and maybe blow the whole joint up. Otis, you amaze me. Oh, I ain't so smart I was Spence's idea. Come on. Here. Go ahead. Walk. Rick? Yeah. Wait a minute. Diamond's outside now. Okay? Tell him to come in. But just him. Anyone else? Okay, him? okay. Rick, come on in. But no one else. All right. Order, stick right here. I may want to talk to you. Sure. Uh, uh, Diamond. Yeah? Uh, on nothing. You're so right. Hello, Rick. Walt? This is Mr. Lou Spence, Rick. Mm hmm. How are you, Mr. Diamond? What's the matter, Spence? You want an early 4th of July? Rick. You think I'm kidding, Mr. Diamond? You think I'm not serious about this thing? Is that the bomb? Right here in my lap. He's got it rigged so it goes off the minute he relaxes his hand. You see, I thought maybe the police would want to take it away from me. If you shoot me, try to knock me out, 
Well, it goes off. Then you won't mind if I take a look, huh? Rick, please. Stay right where you are. And I'll stay over here. Uh, well, just, uh, just as you say, Mr. Spence. Mr. Diamond, the reason you're here is because I want someone to talk to the mayor. I don't know whether it was explained to you or not, but unless his honor has done away with himself by noon, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Uh, including yourself. Oh, that doesn't really matter. You see, in making my escape, a guard attempted to stop me. I had to kill him. He split his head open with a crowbar. That's right. Oh, uh, mind if I sit down? Not at all. But it's four minutes after 11. I hope you don't plan on staying too long. Cigarette? No, thank you. Uh, you look like a pretty reasonable guy, Spence. Well, I... thank you. It's too bad Lieutenant Levinson didn't think so when they arrested me. Now I'm going to have to show him I'm not as insane as he thought I was. Oh, well, you'll have to excuse that, Spence. Walt thinks everybody's a little, well, you know, even me. That's very interesting. Oh, and with good reason. Ever take a look at his sergeant? Mr. Diamond, when the lieutenant arrested me, I was putting an explosive under the mayor's house. He stopped me in my first attempt to rid the community of a political Judas. But now, as you see, I have a second chance. You really think the mayor's going to jump off the city hall? He better. And by 12 o'clock. By the way, you have 55 minutes. Now, uh, look, Spence, Forget I... it, Mr. Diamond. I know just what you're thinking. How to get me without the bomb going off. You'll never make it. It's too well thought out. I've planned this for four years. In case you're wondering how much dynamite he's got, Rick, Oh, I... Mr. Diamond needs convincing. Well, under this overcoat, Mr. Diamond, are some 100 sticks. Uh, uh, does the mayor know about it yet? Yeah. Oh, you want me to talk to him, huh? I don't care whether you talk to him or not. I just want you to be there when he jumps. Swell. And just because you come back and tell me he's jumped, that isn't enough. I want his body in this room. Uh, Walt, I, uh... I don't know what to say. Don't say anything, Rick. Just get out of here. I'm sorry I dragged you over, but I needed time. You still do. It's 54 minutes to 12. Clear the building, Rick. Yes, do that, Mr. Diamond. I think the lieutenant is going to make a hero of himself. Uh, look, Spence, I've, uh, I've got till 12 o'clock, haven't I? Unless someone tries to get me. Oh, well, then uh, uh, sit tight, Walt, and give me till 12. Okay, Rick. I hope you spend the time wisely. I'm sure you'd rather see the mayor die than your best friend. Oh, Spence, if you forget about this, they'll probably just put you Goodbye, back... Goodbye, at... Mr. Diamond. Fifty-three minutes. Okay. Walt? Go ahead, Rick. Like you said, fifty-three minutes. Goodbye, Mr. Diamond. Come back soon. Otis. Yeah? What's going to happen? Clear the building. Well, what about it, Rick? Lieutenant wants the building cleared. Okay. Come on, you guys. Levinson says clear the building, so we'll clear the building. Good luck, Rick. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, what do we do? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It's ten minutes after eleven. In another fifty minutes, this whole building is going to get blown higher than a kite. Okay, do something. Huh? Well, go ahead. Well, I... Uh, you see, Otis, you're in just as tough a spot as I am. Yeah, but you're smarter than I am. You can usually come up with something. Well, usually my problems are a puzzle, Otis. Spencer's a problem and a puzzle. I don't know about guys like him. Well, for Pete's sake, who does? Well, that's an idea. Huh? Stay here and keep close to the intercom. Don't let the lieutenant get any crazy ideas. Uh, hey, wait a minute. Where are you going? You're acting screwy. Well, Otis, I'm going to go see someone who takes care of people who act screwy sometimes.
Well, that's the story, George. You're a psychiatrist. What do I do now? Well, he solved your problem with that little blonde dancer in Flatbush. Maybe we can do something about this. Mm. Of course, she didn't have a hundred sticks of dynamite. Oh, she didn't, huh? What do you think I talked about for six weeks on that couch over there? <laughs> Look, George, this isn't anything like that. This is a real mess. Now, Rick, take it easy. It's only a mess because you're used to working with something that has a pattern. Maybe not at first, but you know there's one there and you set out and find it. But with Spence, you feel there's no pattern. Oh, there's a pattern, George. Just wait for 38 minutes, then duck. There's no possible way to get the bomb away from him without it going off? Not the way he tells it. He only has to relax his hand. Mm, that's the way he tells it. Well, I'm not going to take the chance and call him a liar. If I only knew for sure just how that bomb worked, I could reason with him. Well, before you can reason with him, you've got to know something about him. And what do you know about Lewis Spence? Arrested a couple of years ago for planting dynamite under the homes of some of our more prominent city officials. Found insane, sent to the state asylum, killed a guard, broke out, turned himself into a human bomb and took a seat in the 5th Precinct Police Station. That's all? Well, isn't that enough? Well, I'll tell you what, Rick. I know Dr. Carroll at the state asylum. Suppose we give him a call and see what we can find out. You think it'll help? I don't know. It might. Operator, this is an emergency. This is Dr. George Thacker, and I want to speak to Dr. Robert Carroll at the State Asylum immediately. What was the name again? Dr. Robert Carroll. One moment, please. It'll be a minute, Rick. What time is it? Oh, 25 after. You got another phone here, George? Yes, I've got several lines in the other office. Good, I'll make a call. Let me know when you get Dr. Carroll on the line. Operator, would you please hurry? I hate the use of the expression, but this is a matter of life and death. You're on my line, Rick. Use the other phone. Doris? Yeah. Where the devil are you? It's almost 11.30. You talked to the lieutenant since I left? Yeah, once. He wanted me to get out of the building. Now, you just stay put until I get there. I don't want Walt to try anything stupid. Yeah, well, I want to know what you're doing. I'm trying to get an idea, Otis. Just one little idea. Trying to get an idea? I suppose you've been spending the last 20 minutes sitting in Central Park waiting for one to come to you. Rick, come in here and pick up the other phone. I've got Dr. Carroll on the line. Bye, Otis. I've explained the situation to him. I won't interrupt unless I think it's necessary. Fine. Uh, uh, hello, Dr. Carroll. Mr. Diamond? Uh, that's right. Now, uh, Doctor, I, I really don't know what good this is going to do, but tell me everything you know about Lewis Spence and as fast as possible. Well, first of all, he's an aggressive paranoic with homicidal tendencies. Mm -hmm. He feels persecuted by society, or uh, rather by those who help to govern society. Why does he feel this way? He believes in a great many things, all of which he thinks himself capable of achieving. A paranoiacs are frustrated to a point where they perhaps imagine themselves as capable artists or uh, great scholars, such as in the case of Louis Spence, uh, society being his judoscope. Pardon me for interrupting, Bob, but don't you think Spence is capable of doing this sort of thing? Oh, absolutely, George. You see, he's doing this whole thing purely because he enjoys the agony of it, but he's nonetheless ashamed. But uh, what about the mayor jumping off the city hall, Doctor? Just to be ridiculous for the moment, what if his honor did jump? Would Spence then give up the bomb? I doubt it. If the mayor jumped, it would give Spence a certain amount of satisfaction. But I still think he'd set the bomb off as a climax to his own cleverness and persecution. Pardon again, Bob. Any usual therapy that you used on Spence? Mm, yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, Spence, as I've said, imagined himself a great talent... And uh, he seemed to lean particularly toward the more artistic accomplishments, such as painting and music. 
Uh, in his quieter moments, we saw that he had a radio. How does this music affect him, Bob? He allows it to lull him into a sense of security. Sometimes he even believes he's written it. Uh, you see, Mr. Diamond, he believes that his environment is against him, that it is trying to debase and degrade and persecute him. He fights off any acts of moral turpitude by becoming the thing he imagines. Oh, I hate to break it up, boys, but it's 25 minutes to 12. I, I've got to leave. Thank you, Doctor. I hope I've been some help. Well, you've given me an idea anyway. Goodbye. <laughs> Just a minute, just one minute. I'll be right with you. Oh, look, I'm in a hurry. So you're in a hurry. So's everybody else. You'll have to wait until I'm through with this gentleman. Sweetheart. Now look. You look. Oh, a badge. Yeah, now this is police business. Got to be in a hurry. Is that clock right? Yeah, it's a quarter to 12. 16 minutes to. All right, 16 minutes. You want to split hairs? No, I want a portable phonograph and quick. Okay, okay. Here's one right here on the counter. Three speeds interchanging. I'll take it. Okay, I'll go back to the storeroom and get you a new one. Uh, forget it. I'll take this one. Look, mister, we got a policy here. I can't say you're nothing off the counter. Supposing it don't work when you get it home. You'll hear about it. You see? That's just what I mean. But does it play now? Certainly, like everything. Listen. Oh, boy, that's Pete Rugolo's new arrangement. He's crazy. Okay, okay. Hmm. Don't dig it, huh? Give me a record by uh, Debussy or Ravel. Oh, no wonder. Well, let's see. We, uh, we got the engulfed cathedral by Debussy. No, no. Something with a little more excitement. Oh, I... All right, all right. I'll read them off. Debussy or Ravel? Ravel. Uh-huh. Uh, La Waltz, I guess. And we got Bolero. I'll take it. Which one? The Bolero. Okay. I'll have to play it for you. I've heard it. So what? It's another policy of the store. There might be an imperfection Give me on... the record. Hey, don't get so grabby. Now, look, dear... You want me to have you locked up for obstructing justice? Huh? Well, unless you give me that record and this machine, this one right here, I'm going to snap the cuffs on you and haul you down to headquarters. Oh. You want me to do that? Well, you can't. All right. What's your name? Well, take the machine and the record. Thanks. Charge it to Lieutenant Walter Levinson, 5th Precinct, Homicide Division. If it works, you get paid. If it doesn't, don't even bother sending over a repairman. You know what time it is. What, exactly? Exactly six minutes, too. What the devil you got there? A phonograph. A phonograph? You talked to Walt since I left? No. Now, what's the idea with a phonograph? Hunch, Otis. Maybe we can save this whole mess. Well, for Pete's sake, can I help? Sure you can, Otis. Now, take this machine in the other room and play this record. You know how it works? Well, I can find out. You got less than five minutes to find out, so make it good. I don't want to hear anything until you're ready to let it play all the way through. Okay. Uh, uh, Diamond. Yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. W whatever you're gonna do, if if I louse it up, I louse up everything, huh? You won't louse it up, Otis. Oh, I'm so stupid, but I'll try. Otis. Yeah. You don't have to wind it. Just plug it in. Oh yeah, yeah. I heard about them kind. All right, then get going. Okay. Yeah. Walt, it's Diamond. What's up? Yeah, Lieutenant. Oh, I'm getting sick of this. Walt. Yeah. Relax. I want to come in. How about it, Spence? By all means, have Mr. Diamond come in. All right, Rick. Hello, 
You have some news for me, Mr. Diamond? Well, in a way, yes, sir. Mind if I sit down? Not at all. Um, how do you feel, Walt? Uh, dandy. I'm afraid the lieutenant is growing uncomfortable. It is getting late, isn't it, Lieutenant? Rick, I want you out of this building. This crackpot is... What? Oh, wait a minute now. What did you wait call a minute. me? Now, look, I've taken what enough... What does it make now at 12 o'clock? Well, well, sure it does. Why? Because the mayor may jump. What? Yes, he's locked himself in his office. They can't get him out. He just may jump. <laughs> really, Mr. Diamond? Well, what's the matter? I know the mayor won't jump, no matter how many people die when I release this trigger. I just want him to have to face it the rest of his life. I want everyone like me that his kind won't let fulfill their potential talents to realize what a Judas he really is. What all men like him really are. Well, you know, that makes sense. Don't try to get on the good side of me, Mr. Diamond. I know what you think about me. I know what you all think. It doesn't make good sense to you or anyone else. How could it? You don't understand those of us who have a truly great talent. Well, I'll buy that. I don't understand it. Of course not. Well, maybe he doesn't, Spence, but how do you know? Maybe I do. Stop playing, Mr. Diamond. Look at the time. Five minutes. Five minutes and I become a martyr. We'll all get blown to kingdom come. Rick, get out of here. All right, Spence, I, I, I'm going to prove you're wrong. Rick, for the love Shut of... Shut up, Walt. All right, go ahead, Mr. Diamond. What are you going to prove? I'm going to prove that I know more about you than you think. Of course you know a lot about me. Criminals have records. Oh, I don't mean that. I mean more about yourself. What you think, your, your talents. What do I think, Mr. Diamond? You fool. How could you know what I think? Because a talent like yours is easy to spot. Four minutes, Mr. Diamond. No, it's not hard to tell about people like you. People like me? What about people like me? Well, I, uh, Spence, I meant that, well, there, there are not many of them there. They're few and far between. They're, they're gifted. What? Certainly. There's something you have that very few are lucky enough to be gifted with. Oh, Rick, please. Nearly 12, Mr. Diamond. I can tell that you are an artist, Spence. An artist? Yes, and a very good one. How do you know this? Very few people spot it. Do they, Spence? Very few. You surprise me, Mr. Diamond. He surprises me, too. Walt, keep quiet. Yes, Walt, keep quiet. It's two minutes to twelve, Mr. Diamond. You can leave because maybe you have been honest with me. Perhaps you do recognize something that... What's the matter, Spence? Music. Music? I don't hear anything. Music. Beautiful music. Well, I don't hear a thing, Spence. Do you, Walt? No. Oh, you, you must hear it. It's beautiful. Don't you hear that wonderful rhythm? Now, you see, Spence, we're not as lucky as you are. No, no, no one is. This is my music. This is what I would write if it wasn't for the people who won't let me. What does the music sound like? Oh, Poet's words. The power and strength of death. It makes you imagine things, doesn't it? Yes, yes, oh, yes. You hear the music and you become powerful. Like making that bomb. Not just anybody could think of that. It takes genius. You understand. You do understand. Well, of course I do, but I am still amazed. There you sit with the power of life and death in your hands and no one can do a thing. It must be wonderful. It is. Like the music, it's wonderful. In seconds, we'll all be torn from our earthly bonds, taken away from this dirty, filthy world to a place of clean, wonderful things like that music. Oh, but you, you're an artist. 
How could you ever take a thing like that bomb and put it together? A thing like this bomb? Oh, this is a masterpiece. Just looks like a small box to me. Oh, it took me weeks. Just a small box. Oh, no, you see, if my finger relaxes... Yeah, I know about that. But this took genius. It's not just relaxing my finger. It's how I put it together so as to get the required result. It's like the hammer action on a gun, but it's reversed. Well, I'll be darned. You mean when you release your finger, that makes the hammer fall? I can see you appreciate things of genius. I wish you could hear the music too, Mr. Diamond. You'd really appreciate that. It's so wonderful. Well, tell me more about the bomb. When you release your finger and the hammer falls, what does it hit? Well, that's a simple part. I'm surprised at you. I just wanted to hear you tell me. After all, you invented it. Yes. It strikes a cap. It's that simple. Simplicity can be beautiful. Don't you agree? Ah, absolutely. Listen to that music. It builds and builds. Tell me, Spence, what would happen if something got in the way of the hammer? I mean, between the hammer and the cap. Nothing can. There's nothing big enough in the box that the hammer wouldn't tear right through. Simplicity, Mr. Diamond. I'd sure like to take a look at it. Of course. There's nothing you can do. So by all means, look. Well, you've got glass over the end of the box. That's right. See my finger on the trigger? If I release it, that hammer falls and strikes that cap. Why the glass? So I could look in when I set it and see that everything was all right. Oh, that's very clever. That music is getting so big, I... I can't think. What time is it? Plenty of time, Spence. Yes, yes. When the music finishes. It's nearly done now. Uh, what? I thought you said you couldn't hear it. It's a phonograph from the other room, Spence. What? Tell me, Spence, what happens if I jam my hand through that glass between the hammer and the cap? What? what? That music! That music! Got him off, got, got him! Let him go! 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 Take him away. With pleasure. And you, Rick. Yeah? How'd you know that music at work? How'd you know you could stop that hammer? How'd you know you wouldn't... wouldn't... Oh. Did you hurt your hand? Well, of all the... Well, did you? No. Well, all right. You just bet it is. Goodbye. doing here? Well, now, that's nice. Stop by my place some afternoon and see what kind of a welcome you get. Oh, I didn't mean that. I meant, what are you doing here so early? Well, things were getting boring. I thought I might come over and beat you up or something. Oh, now, isn't that sweet? Oh, Rick, what in the world have you... Hmm? Oh, oh, the hand? Oh, it's nothing. I know, Red Heart, but what did you do to it? Well, I, uh, I kind of hurt it. Yes, I can see that, but how? Playing the piano. Oh, how could you hurt your hand playing the piano? Well, you know how I live my songs. Mm-hmm. Well, truthfully, I was, uh, I was singing The Brother of the Wild Goose, and I got to that part about a wandering foot or a heart at rest, and while I was trying to make up my mind, my heart was resting, but my foot wandered up on the keyboard and stepped and on stepped my hand. And stepped on your yeah, hand. that's exactly what happened, yeah. Well, I think you've got that bandage on just so you won't have to sing anything. Honey, have you ever seen me not want to sing? Well, sometimes it's a struggle. I don't even know whether I can play or not. Well, why don't you find out? After lunch. Before lunch. Before lunch. Well, maybe I don't need that finger. <laughs> Go on. 
Love is a flower that blooms so tender. Each kiss a dewdrop of sweet surrender. Love is a moment of life enchanting. Let's take that moment that tonight is granting. There's no tomorrow when love is new. Now is forever when love is true. So kiss me and hold me tight. There's no tomorrow. There's just tonight. You like that? Oh, so pretty. Oh, thank you. Oh, that reminds me. We're having spaghetti for lunch. Oh, good. Kiss me and hold me tight. There's no tomorrow. There's just Now tell me, how did you hurt your hand? Simple, simple. I was grabbing. Grabbing? Mm-hmm. Like this. Come here. Oh, Rick. Oh, of all times. Hello? Hello? Walt? Yeah, I just thought I'd call and... Oh, you did, did you? Well, you sure picked a nifty time to do it. Oh, did I bust up something? Yes, you did bust up something. Well, you don't have to get sore. Well, who's sore? I am. That's the last time I'll let you do me any favor. Okay, okay. If that's the way you feel about it, goodbye. Goodbye. Well, what in the world was all that about? Oh, well, honey, you see, it's like this. Walt got in some trouble, and I... Well, I helped him out of it. Now, you see, I don't want him to feel obligated. But, well, that's not actually it. He he doesn't want me to know how he really feels. I... It... Oh, what am I trying to explain it for? I don't understand it myself. <laughs> have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Ed Begley played Lieutenant Walt Levinson. Also in the cast were Wilms Herbert, Francis Robinson, Stanley Waxman, Cynthia Corley, and Paul Dubov. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Today's show was written by Blake Edwards and directed by Russell Hughes. Dick Powell currently may be seen in the motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. This is Eddie King inviting you to be with us next Sunday at the same time, when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective.
There's more great listening in store for you today on NBC. You'll hear the hilarious Phil Harris and Alice Faye show. And this evening on Theater Guild on the Air, Gertrude Lawrence and McDonald Carey will star in Lady in the Dark. Next, hear guest star Deborah Alden on The Harvest of Stars on NBC. created in the motion picture The Third Man with Zither Music by Anton Kara. If I were an honest man, which would be silly on the face of it, this would be my sermon. Any character who gets swindled is asking for it. You can't swindle a man unless he's so full of larceny that his very breathing is crooked. This, to a man of my talents, would be disconcerting if I didn't know that nine people out of ten are full of larceny. Like a certain American named Harris, who not so long ago came to Paris for a holiday. Strictly in Mr. Harris's honor, I concocted a juicy little swindle called horseplay. Excuse me. My good, but you did not. 
could see what... Look, it's a billfold. You must have dropped it. Billfold? Drop it or not me. I've got mine all right. Well, let's see here. Well, whosoever it is, it's sure one fat wallet. But look here at this. Oh, there's nothing to be leaving around in hotel bars. Seven, eight, ten, fifteen, ten mil, five notes. Must be 400 American dollars anyway. Membership card here to some club. Club the turf. Uh, what's that? Sounds like some sort of club where one may play spits on all A turf club. This is English? Oh, sure. A turf club, eh? Ah, uh, fellow's name is Harry Lyme. Here, look at this. Looks like some sort of coast, I bet. And two race tickets. Uh, and look, look at this newspaper clipping here. From an American newspaper? I guess so. Mysterious racetrack plunger Harry Lyon winning in Belmont this season. Estimated at more than one million dollars. Well, that's all right, doesn't he? Eh? We'd better ask at the desk to see if there is anybody here in the hotel whose name is, uh, what is it again? Uh, Harry Lyon. Come on, let's ask. Are you, Mr. Harry Lyme? You're a newspaper man. If you are, I don't want to see you. No interviews. Except we will not be bothered by a lot of... One moment, sir, please. We simply go by to ask if you had lost anything. Lost anything? Certainly not. Good day, gentlemen. You sure you have your wallet? Your billfold? Oh, Where? Now, just a second. I, I think, think we have found it, Mr. Oh, come Mr. in. Man. Come in, gentlemen. I'm sure you know how good I am. I, uh, if I seem to be rude, it's just that these reporters eaten here in Paris... You know, all the man in I my position. I suppose you can uh, identify the bill. Oh, I certainly can. Now, let's see. Some cash, maybe four or five hundred in French American money, a membership card and Club de Turf, a code cipher I use in my business, and, uh, oh, I'd see a couple of cablegrams. Uh, yours, all right. Well, can't tell you how grateful I am, sir. They would have put me in. Here, why don't you take this cash and have yourselves a good time? Oh, nonsense. Don't no, be foolish. Please. <laughs> please me very much if you take it. Seriously, these papers here, they're, they're what's of value, although only to me. You're sure I can't repay you by... No, no, mille merci. Well, then, at the very least, you must both be my guests for an evening while you're in Paris. Drinks, dinner, make around the hottest spots, maybe some girlfriends, huh? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, let me place a bet for you just to cover your hotel bill while you're in town. A bet? I'm afraid I do not exactly see what you are... Uh, he means on the horse races, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, you mean you have some, uh, let me see, some odd tips. Well, in a way, yes, uh, tips. <laughs> you see... I represent a large syndicate which, uh, shall we say, is beginning to regulate the winning of races at French tracks. I'm merely the agent placing the syndicate money to the uh, considerable disadvantage of French bookmakers and gambling clubs until they fall into line. Actually, this is all confidential. Oh, but of course. By me. That's why I was so curt with you when you first came to the door, you understand. I thought maybe you might be newspaper men. Occasionally they become embarrassingly close to realizing what the syndicate is up to. And naturally, any publicity would... Excuse me. Yes? Table drum, monsieur. Merci, tiens, garçon. Oh, merci bien, monsieur. The point is, gentlemen, I'm sent my instructions by coded cablegrams, so you can see what a spot I'd be in without my cipher. So, I'm grateful to you both. I most certainly am. Uh, you mean the bets you place, uh, the races have been fixed in advance? Well, now, fixed is a very unpleasant word, but... That's about the size of it. That's why it occurred to me that perhaps I could show my gratitude by placing a small bet for both of you, which with good odds would at least make you some cigarette money while you're here in Paris. Excuse me just a moment, will you? What a thing to happen in our age, Helen. What do you mean? Why, don't you get it? Fixed races. An absolutely sure thing. 
all that these figures unsettle you, Harris. It just sounds like a lot of money. Translated, that means only about 50,000 American dollars. Place the check together with your cash on Dancing Cloud in the fourth race at Chantier. The odds should be about four to one. That would net you at sea. Well, it's more than 200,000 American dollars. What a way to make money. <laughs> I, oh, uh, by the way, Lyme, I don't speak much French. Oh, don't worry about that, Harris. The club deterred. Most of the betters are English or American anyway. All the business transacted in English if you don't speak French. Oh, fine. Well, come on, let's go, Jen. Now, please. One moment, Monsieur Light. Yes? I don't have 15 million francs in cash to make that check good. I don't like the idea of putting my name to a check for 15 million. Oh, now, look, Johnny, don't worry about that. This guest card assures you credit. Then when you win, you take up the check and it's in trouble. Yes, but what if we lose? Oh, don't be a dope, Janet. You can't lose. It's a short thing. <laughs> you catch on quick, Harris. You can't lose. <laughs> Wells returns in just a moment as the third man. to make a huge profit on a sure, crooked wager. Quite a place, eh? Yeah, yeah. First time I was ever in a place like this. Steve, you remember the headphones up there at the ball? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's talking down the odds, no? The results, too, I guess, of other races. Yeah, yeah. There's the cashier's window. Yeah. Do you think we should make the bet now? But are the odds right? Well, over there, see? Oh, sure. Well, I guess... Uh, yeah. You got that blank check. Right here. Oh, it's not blank anymore. Oh, come on. Let's get up that window. Are the odds on dancing cow right? Oh, sure. Oh, sure, sure. Come on, hurry up, Janet. I won't feel right. Let bed is down. All right, just so. Yes, sir? I want to place this on Dancing Cloud in the fourth at Chantilly. Mm, if you don't mind, sir, I'd like to see your car. Oh, fine, thanks. Dancing Cloud in the fourth at Chantilly. Check for 15 million francs and 600,000 in cash. All one bit of cash? Why, yes, all one bit. Here's your ticket, sir. 15 million 600,000 francs on Dancing Cloud. Thank you. Next, please. Afternoon, Marcel. One million francs across the board on Beaumarchais. Come on, Janet. Let's sit up near that collar. I'm worried. My name on that check. Well, why worry? How can you no, lose? Hey, everybody I hear was betting on Beaumarchais in this race. Relax, Janet. Relax. 
sleeper there. Did you hear him? He did not even mention dancing clown. Oh. Well, I guess they don't want to make it look too raw, you know. Why did I put my name on that check? Fifteen million francs. Oh, you'll be all right. Look at the way all these men around us are taking it. Sure, their money is on Beaumarchais. See, there. Dancing clown. Third. How long do these races last? You know? No, a minute or two, I guess. Oh, oh. I think the race is probably over by now, and we sit here. My name on that check, 15 million. You think, uh, uh, some mistake? Why did we do it? A man we never saw before yesterday. But he did win without that money, didn't he? I know that. There'll be some mistake. There's some reason for it. I bet he's not even there. Listen. Winner in the fourth at Chantilly.
Until Harris's cash can be cabled from the States, I've got to be sure that he's kept on ice. $28,000, it's worth all the time and effort. Two days, three, and his money arrives. Johnny and Harris and I walk to the club to turf together, Johnny and carrying the 15 million francs. So we get to the club. I look up from decoding a cablegram, which was handed to me as I left the hotel. Hmm, it's Mal de Mer in the third race at Chantier today, three to one. Mal de Mer, yeah. yeah. I guess we'd better look up that manager. There he is. Oh, well, monsieur. Huh? One moment, please. Uh, you want him, gentlemen? You remember Janine and Monsieur Reis here? Oh, I'm afraid I... That bet for 15 million, you held up our check until... Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Just present your ticket to the cashier. I assume you have the money with you? Right here, yes, sir. Fine, fine. Just show the ticket and the money to the cashier. At the bookmill in the first of the quarter, give us up by one, frankly heat by a half, and blue booty. Come on, Shannon, cash that check, the ticket in. I'll just see if the odds are now the matter three to one. Golly, my share of that dough at three to one? Yes, sir. This ticket, my receipt for uh, the manager told me just to show it to you. Ah, oh, yes, Monsieur Janine, is it not? You have the 15 million in cash? Right here. Yeah. The odds are three to one, all right. Fine. Money, please. Now then, that's 78 million francs, right? <laughs> that's right, I believe. Well, these packages are 10 million apiece. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's 70 million. And uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think that's right. Count it, please. Well, why don't you place it on Maldemere? The second race is up. I think I watched the marker. That's a good idea. Put it all on Maldemere to win. First time for the second at Shorty was 205. Off time was 25 and a half. They're off and running in the second of Shorty. 78 million on Maldemer to win. And here's your ticket, sir. Great heavens, a half million dollars for me. Well, oh. gentlemen, a cooling drink while we wait. Did you place the money, Janine? Yes, I did. I hope nothing goes wrong. Here's the ticket line. Good Lord, man. You bet this horse to win? I said place. That horse will run second. At the corner, Maldemer ahead, dilemma half, and done. Uh, I say, manager, oh, uh, can, we, can we exchange this ticket from a win ticket to a place ticket? Oh, no, no, really, no, no, sir. But it's very important, and I beg of you, please. Now, really, it is ridiculous. The race is already But it was run. a mistake, monsieur. I assure you that it was my intention that the wager should be for place, not win. I am sorry, sir. Nothing can be done after the marker has called the off time for the race. Rules of the hour. Oh, you dumb mark, Janine. My $9,000, I ought to thrash you within an inch of... Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, oh, please, please. Support me. Take your hand off me. Don't start, you crook. You throw my money away. He ruled me, too. Let me have it. Gentlemen, please. No, 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 I don't. Oh, oh, get down of course, we left my specially rigged club as quickly as we could. Janin was sprawled in a welder of blood, and Harris, you may be sure, was stark, sheer, 100% terrified, but don't you worry. This was all just fun for the kiddies, just horseplay. The bullets I fired were blanks. The blood all over Janine's handsome Gallic profile was chicken blood, spurting out of a punctured bladder at the opportune moment. After all, we now had my friend Harris's 28,000 American dollars, didn't we? So our only problem was to terrify him into leaving town without peeping to the police. In my hotel room, I poured him a drink. Here. Here, Harris, oh. old man. You need this. Oh, thanks. I'm afraid I killed him. If you hadn't, I would have... I never should carry a gun. When I lose my temper, old man, I go crazy. We, we've got to think. The worst of it is, I've involved you as an accomplice. Yeah. Good Lord, that's right. For one thing, it was a private oh. club. Now, look, 
You better pack, old man. Got an Italian visa? No. Well, well, go, go to Italy. Try and get rid of that suit somewhere. There's blood spattered on it. Throw it, throw it off the train, perhaps, sir. Uh, yes, but to where in Italy? Oh, in Italy. There's my wife, my business. I can't you lie low for a while, just a week or so, until we find out whether that that fool Janine dies or not. I'll tell you. Go to the Hotel Splendide in Rome. I'll wire you there. I'll get you out of this. Oh yes, I'll get you out of this, old man. I feel, after all. But I'm partially responsible for all this. Well, oh, it's awfully good. Nonsense, nonsense, old man. You do the same for me. Now then, into the bathroom. Go on, wash up. Right. There's a train to Rome in 30 minutes. Yes. And you've got to be on it. Uh, I will. He was, too. And I sat back, quietly savoring a highball, mentally spending my lion's share of his $28,000. My expenses weren't more than 8000 tops. <laughs> what a wonderful horseplay it had been, to be sure. Hmm. This would be Janine with the loot. Yeah? Ah, Janine, my sweet, my lovely, my dove, my pigeon. Where's the dough? Hey, the flicks, the French cops, they uh, raided your the club right after you'd left. No, you're kidding. Me. All the cats they can lay their hands on, arrested Louis and Bertrand, what? René and the whole crowd. Truth be here, which is all I could grab before I How much? I How much did you get? Our original stake, Harry, and a small profit. How much profit? Two mil franc notes, Harry. One piece. Two dollars and a half. <laughs> returns in just a moment. side to it. I'm still at liberty and not in prison. This is a great advantage in my business. I'm not at all depressed, for I know that this is a lovely world full of Jack Harris's, and I assure you I will meet another such very shortly. Until then, if you're going to spend money on horses, be sure they're on the merry-go-round, for the most you can lose is the brass ring. <laughs>
Adventures of the Saints, starring Vincent Price. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. I don't like it around here, Rico. A waterfront? What's the matter with it? Oh, I don't know. I, I get the jitters. You think too much. Listen, after we pick up the stuff from Sparrow, you can retire. Ever been in Florida? Yeah, yeah, once. I didn't like it. All right, so you can retire someplace else. Is that the ship up ahead? It ought to be if we're on the right pier. Yeah, that's the expert. Yeah, there's no lights on it. Nobody's aboard except Sparrow. Yeah, I'll be glad to see him. Me too. Fifty grand on the hoof. Rigo. What's the matter? Somebody's on deck. It's not Sparrow. Huh? Oh, relax. It's an old man, the night watchman. Oh, well, they got to have a night watchman around. I don't know. You think somebody might sweat for ship? Hey, you. Huh? What's your order out here? Uh, we're coming aboard. We got an appointment. Okay, come on. Appointment with who? Put your pop gun away. Sparrow is expecting us. Sparrow? Yeah, one of the crew. You heard of him, didn't you? Yeah. Heard a lot about him. How come? He jumped boats. Frigo, Take you hear what he says? Collins. The jump boat where, Pop? Galveston. The crew was talking about it. Sparrow had been acting funny ever since the boat pulled out of Amsterdam. Come, Galveston. Goodbye, Mr. Sparrow. Oh, that's fine. Goodbye to our storm, Shut up, too. Collins. You have something belonging to you, Fred? No, no. Uh, we're friends of his. We just wanted to get in touch with him. Well, you sure come to the wrong place. You could be putting on an act. You're on the ship. Go ahead and look for him. Uh, never mind. Come on, Collins. Come on. Are we going to wait? Nah, this is one place Sparrow wouldn't ever show up. But he'll have to show sooner or later. And when he does, let's get out of here. So long, Pop. So long. Left, Sparrow. Oh, I guess they believe you, huh? <laughs> yeah, they sure did. I offered to let them search the ship. They was too smart. Figured if you was really on board, I wouldn't have offered. So they went away. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Gleason. Here's a fiber. <laughs> Why do you want to dock them so bad? Oh, I told you, you know, I owed them some money. I ain't got it. It's, uh... Hey, take the five, huh? Uh, that isn't the way they told us. What isn't the way? You owing them a few bucks. In the way they figured it, it was 50,000. You're crazy. In stones, they said. Where are they, Mr. Sparrow? I said you're crazy. You can say it again if it makes you feel any better. I think maybe I'll take a look. Get away from that bag. But, Mr. Sparrow, I've got a gun. I'm a warning you. Better keep clear of me. I'm not. What a fool. What good will 50,000 do you, dead? Give me that gun. I'll break your arm. A fool. Watch out. 
yes. I was just about to curl up in front of the fire with a bottle of shut-eye and sleep and sleep. And? Well, maybe I don't need tablets to soothe my nerves. <laughs> Come in. Thank you. Mm. Mr. Templer, my name is Susan Sparrow. That sounds very demure. Are you? Isn't that the kind of thing you should find out for yourself? Miss Sparrow or Mrs.? Mrs. Oh. And I could always ask your husband. If you can find him. I can't. That's why I've come to you. Oh, I see. Somebody lost him? Well, he was supposed to have reached New York three days ago on the steamship Exbrook. Oh, he was a passenger? No, one of the crew. He hasn't come home, Mr. Templer. You waited three days before doing anything about it? Well, of course, because we live in, in Cleveland. Oh, which means you'd have allowed him a day to get there, a day's wait before you got alarmed, and a day for you to come here. All right. Uh, can you think of any reason why he wouldn't have come to Cleveland? Can you? Hmm. Well, of course, he may not feel the same way I do about... About? Cleveland. You've got in touch with the ship's captain? No. You see, Frank, my husband, didn't want anyone to know he was married. He's shy? I don't know. He, well, he's sort of mysterious about things. I see. Will you find him for me, Mr. Templer? I'm afraid something may have happened to him. Something terrible. I'll do what I can. That means you'll find him. A very pretty vote of confidence, but... And uh... it's more than a vote. You're a lifesaver, Simon. Well, thank you. I just hope I'll strike the right flavor with your husband. Hey, Bud. I beg your pardon, officer. Where are you going? Oh, uh, I'm on my way to the Exbrook. Uh, that's it, isn't it, at the end of the pier? Yes, that's the Exbrook. But visiting hours ain't in effect. Oh? Yeah, Harbor Detail's got a little job of work to do. Oh, such as? Dredging. It sounds deep. Hmm. For anything in particular? A body. I see. Someone fell overboard. Well, maybe. Or he could have been pushed. <laughs> Templer, the lieutenant is ready to see you now. Yeah, it's very nice of the lieutenant. Come on. They uh, found the body, then. Yeah. Watch your step here. Hey, lieutenant. Here's the guy. Okay, Simmons. Now, Mr. Templer, I understand you've been hanging around. Watchful waiting might be a better description. What brings you here? A man named Sparrow. Friend of yours? I never met him. However, I'd like to see him. Why? He might be worth seeing. He might be. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Templer. Aren't you the saint? Yes, but you don't want my biography at the moment, do you? No. Come here. You said you wanted to look at Sparrow. Okay, look at him. Uh, he's not very pretty. Nobody is after soaking in the harbor for three days. Fish must have been hungry. Yeah, the guy's face is practically gone. But he was carrying his papers on him. The Templar, you found your man, Frank Sparrow. Hmm. He was, uh, drowned, hmm? Surprise, he wasn't drowned. There are a couple of bullets in him. Oh? Who put him there? The same night he disappeared, the night watchman on this tub disappeared too, an old guy named Gleason. We found the watchman's gun in one of the ventilators. Two shots had been fired from it, also some weights were missing. 
Watchman shot Sparrow, put the weights in his clothing to keep him down for a while. Kept him down for three days, but Sparrow came up anyway. Proving you can't keep a good man down. Or a bad man. Templar acts suspicious about anything, Susie? No, he believed me. He's out looking for Sparrow now. You're a good girl, Susie. I wonder, Rigo. Now, that could be unhealthy. Me and Collins asked you to front for us. Get a legit character like Templar to find Sparrow for us, for which you get paid. Don't wonder. All right, Rigo. Except, why are you so anxious to find Sparrow? He owes me and Collins and Bill. Must be a lot. Mind your own business, Susie. All right, all right. Where's Collins? Tailing Templar. We want to know where Sparrow is the instant Templar tags him, see? Rigo... You told me why you didn't want to go to Templar yourself. You said he'd be more willing to do it if a pretty girl like me asked him. And what's that supposed to be? News? No, but I'm beginning to think. Maybe the reason you wanted your names kept out of it is... Suppose something happens to Sparrow after Templar finds him. Something fatal. Then you'd be in the clear. You've got a very healthy imagination. Uh, It doesn't feel healthy right now. Susie, listen... You're running an errand for me. Don't try to run it up to anything else. Otherwise... You wouldn't lay a hand on me. Oh, wouldn't I? (laughs) See? You were wrong about that. You could be wrong about lots of things, so stop imagining. Just do like you're told. No, Rico! Help me. I'll duck into the bedroom till we see you, Collins, or somebody else. All right, all right. Coming, coming! Oh, hello, Simon. May I come in? Of course. I, I'm i glad you came. I've been sort of lonely. That's not exactly why I came. Oh? Simon, you don't mean you've already found Frank? I don't. Oh, Simon, you're wonderful. Not especially. It was very simple. What isn't simple is why someone followed me here. Someone followed you? Oh, you must be imagining it. Perhaps. I'd thought better of my imagination, though. However, Susan, what was your husband carrying on him? I don't quite know what that means. Carrying something? Just a wild thought. Susan, when I got down to the ship, the police were very busy. Doing what? Fishing a body out of the harbor. The papers found on it belonged to Frank Sparrow. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Nothing else in his pockets except... Susan, a night watchman named Gleason disappeared the night of the murder, presumably after emptying those pockets. Oh, that's why you asked me what my husband might be carrying on. Yes. I don't know. I... Simon, you'd better go now. Of course. The, uh, shock. Yes, that's right. Good night, Susan. Good night, Simon. Shots came from down the hall. Simon, don't leave me. Stay there, Susan. Come on back inside. Who? Who was it? The new corpse. The same man who'd followed me here. Collins. What? Oh, nothing. I. You I just... just said Collins. Did you see the man who shot him? No. By the time I got to the end of the hall, he was gone. Who is Collins, Susan? I don't know anyone. Named Collins. You must have made a mistake. Susan, a man was just killed out there. The police will be along in a very little while. They'll identify him. 
That'll lead them to you. No, the police don't know anything about... I do. You wouldn't tell them. How long have you been married to Frank Sparrow? Uh, a couple of years. Mm. You spend a lot of time outdoors, don't you? Someone must have told you how attractive tanned blondes are. Well, yes, I do get out a bit. Mind uh, slipping that wedding ring off your finger? No. Mm, thanks. What are you staring at? Your ring finger. Tanned prettily, even under the ring. What? You haven't been wearing that ring very long, Susan. Otherwise, there'd be a band of lighter skin on your finger, which means you're not married, Susan. You just started wearing that ring today. Simon, I can't... You'll have to. You pretended to be Sparrow's wife and asked me to find him. Why? I... A friend of mine... I mean, Sparrow was a friend of mine. I was worried about him. No. You know I didn't kill Collins. I was here in the room with you when... Someone you know might have killed Collins, just as you might have killed Sparrow. But you said the night watchman Gleason... Was suspected, that's all. Who asked you to pretend you were Sparrow's wife? Uh, a man named Rigo. Why did he want Sparrow found? He didn't tell me. What were you supposed to do when I found Sparrow for you? Tell Rigo, that's all. Huh? Where is Rigo now? I, I don't know. Where did he live? I don't know that either, but... The next time you see him, Susan, ask him to get in touch with me, hmm? Oh, all right, Simon. Is there a back way out of this apartment? I'd uh, just as soon avoid the police. A uh, back way? Apartments frequently have them, you know, usually through the kitchen. <laughs> of course. Come on, I'll show you. You can go right out here. Those stairs lead to the street. Oh, thank you, Susan. Simon, couldn't you forget that you ever came to see me? Forget? Yes. Susan, I can be forgetful about a lot of things, but not murder. Oh. Right, boy, gone? <gasps> oh, Rigo. You weren't very smart, Susan. What do you mean? Feeding Bright Boy my name. I had to. Otherwise, he might have turned me over to the cops. You didn't knock off Collins, did you? So why worry? Because maybe you did. Little thinker, ain't you? Susie, I was in the apartment when Collins got it. You could have gone out the back door, shot him, then come back. Sure. Only you forgot to mention that to Temper. I didn't forget. Rigo, you were expecting something from Sparrow. Something worth money. That night watchman who killed Sparrow must have stolen it. But you're going to find that night watchman now, aren't you? I wouldn't know. Sparrow's being fished out of the harbor don't make me feel good. Rigo, I stuck my neck out on this. For peanuts. There's been a couple of murders. Rigo, I want more money for my end of this job. Suppose I did kill Colin, Susie. That would be on account of I didn't want to cut him in. I mentioned your name to Templar. That would be because I wouldn't want you to get the same idea about me. You're not only pretty, Susie, you're smart. Thanks. You could easily get too smart. All right. I'll cut you in, Susie. But no more flapping of the mouth to Templar, right? Right. Goodbye, Susie. Where are you going? Home. I'm a hard-working man. I need a rest. What about Gleason? The night watchman? Don't worry. He'll have to peddle the stuff he took off Sparrow. When he does... You won't forget to let me know, will you? I won't forget. And uh, you watch yourself for that saint, huh? Because the way I've heard it, it's only a nickname. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hello, Rico. Oh. I rather thought you'd be using the back door. Temper. Temper. Let's not loiter, shall we? The uh, police object. You have a nice visit with Susan? Susan who? Oh, Rico. If you weren't in Susan's apartment, you might have been out in the hallway killing Collins. Uh, now you mention it, you meant Susan. Uh, sure, I was in her apartment all the time. Why were you hiding when I dropped in? Well, you know how it is. I'm a gentleman. Yeah, yeah, the word has been redefined since I went to school. Rico, it looks as though Sparrow is a dead end. How are you going to find Gleason? Why should I want him? Whatever Sparrow had, Gleason has it now. You know something? We ain't near Susie's apartment house anymore. It's kind of late. Nobody around. Oh, you're very observant. Also, somebody who don't like interference. Oh, so that's why you're showing me your gun. Templar, what's to stop me from getting you out of my hair? Hmm? For one thing, you're bald. For another, the man who's been trailing us ever since we left Susan's house. You're lying. Look back. Fast. Oh, no, you're just angling for a chance to jump me. That's your problem. Okay, move up in front of me a couple of feet, but now I'll take a look. You saw him? Yeah, I seen him. Only, I couldn't have. He's dead. Rigo, you're a fool. If you hadn't started running, we could have caught the man trailing us. I like this better, being on a cab. Oh, that's the kind of remark I approve of. Louis, stay out of this conversation. Uh-huh. Suddenly you don't like cab drivers, Mr. Temple? Oh, I'm crazy about them. Look, I see two fellas having a foot race in the middle of the night. I think maybe they would get there faster in a cab. I pull over to the curb, and it's my fault it turned out to be you, huh, Mr. Temple? <laughs> no, Louie, and I'm very grateful that you stopped for it. Okay. Hey, nobody mentioned the address. 53 Carlton. Well, it's our address. Who is that man, Rigo? George Washington. You're a little behind the times. Rigo, did you kill Collins? No. Can you prove it? No. The police are going to want somebody for that murder. Well, let them find their own murderers. I got other troubles. May turn out to be the same trouble, Rigo. If you didn't kill Collins, then the man who did may be after you. Yeah? Yeah, and for the same reason. To get you out of the way. So he could cash in on the stuff Sparrow was smuggling into the country. Jewels, I'd guess. Who cares what you guess? Besides, that would make it Gleason, and I ain't afraid of Gleason. Why not? Because he ain't dead. Hey, Mr. Templer. Yes, Louie? You know, personally, I'm not sorry we deposited Mr. Rigo at his house. He's not the type I'm comfortable driving around in my cab. Don't be narrow-minded, Louis. No, it's not that I'm narrow-minded. Just so happens I'm not bulletproof, neither. <laughs> hey, Mr. Templer, you want I should uh, drive you back to that blonde's apartment? No, Louis. Oh, then your description of her was not the truth. Oh, it was the truth, but I have a more important errand. Go on, in the middle of the night, what could be more important than a blonde? Of course. Louis, make it the morgue, hmm? All right, Louie. Oh, it's about time. I don't enjoy waiting around for a fare outside of the morgue. I get morbid thoughts. Where do you want I should take you? Back at? to Rigo's house. To Rigo's house? Mm. Look, Mr. Temple, I got a suggestion. Why don't we just stay here and send for Rigo? You know, then after he got through with us, we could move right into the morgue without bothering nobody. <laughs> Louie, you're a pessimist. Yeah. I should ought to have been a truck driver. Oh, you whistle nicely? Yeah. My brother-in-law, he keeps telling me. 
Louis says you should be a truck driver. You learn manners, learn to be polite to people, learn how to help distressed motorists when they're in distress, learn how you shouldn't be a road hog. And above everything else, he says, you don't have to associate with riffraff. So do I listen to him? No. I stay a cab driver and I visit the morgue. Hey, Mr. Templer, what did you do there? Looked at the corpse they fished out of the harbor. Uh-huh. He improved in appearance? Hardly. However, I did suggest to the officer in charge that he get in touch immediately with Sparrow's dentist. Oh, wow, wow. The corpse has a toothache, huh? Oh, I don't know, but it's possible, Louie. It's possible. Rigo, Rigo. Susie, let me in. Wait a minute till I unlock the door. Ah, it's nice of you to visit me, Susie. What's the matter with you, Rigo? Nothing. I see things. You sure you come alone? Of course I did. Maybe you only think so. Because maybe somebody came with you, only you can't see him. You're drunk. I wish I was drunker. Rigo. You killed Collins. That's so. You wouldn't have killed him on speculation. You must have found Gleason yourself. Got the jewels from him. Then you killed Collins so you could keep them all. Maybe you're nuts. I want my share. So you come right over and ask for him. Look, if I knock Collins off on account of those stones, what makes you think I wouldn't do the same thing for you? Because I've got this. Oh. Ladies' model? It'll do. You're not very bright, Susie. I can... Rigo, what's the matter? Window. There's somebody at the window. Rigo, he's got a gun. It's funny, I couldn't have figured him to have it's one. It's pointed at you. Rigo, run. From him? Well, oh, there's no place to run to. I can... oh. Oh. oh, Rigo. No place Run. Oh, oh, no, no. Open the door. Rico. Simon. Oh, Simon. They're shots. Where's Rico? He... Never mind. Rico. Rico, who shot you? No. No, I... Rico, don't be a fool. Rico. That's that. Simon. He's dead. You were the only one in the room with him, Susan. He was shot through that window. Simon, please believe me. Hmm. Window glass broken by the bullets. Pieces of glass fell into the room. That means... Someone outside shot Rico. Someone... Keep talking, Susan. He's still out there. Yeah, he mustn't know that we know. We're in the light. Who is it? Never saw him before. I think I could name him. Keep talking, Susan. I'm going to work my way around to the wall next to the window. As soon as I get there, put the lights out in here. The lights? Why? You're near the switch. Don't look at it. All right. It's to your left. A little higher than your waist. Turn a bit away from me. Slide one hand behind your back. What are you going to do, Simon? Go out the window as soon as the lights are out. I'm scared. Nothing to worry about. I'm sad, Susan. Got your finger on the switch? Yes. All right, then. Let's have a little darkness. 
Lights on inside. All right, Simon. Simon, did you? Yes, yes. Our little oh. stranger is resting. You recognize him? No, I've never seen him. Then perhaps I'd better introduce you to him. Susan, meet Mister Sparrow. So, all right, Mr. Templer, the guy you nabbed outside of Rico's house was Sparrow. Yeah? So he killed Rico, so he also killed Collins. Only, but he was dead. No, Louie. They checked with Sparrow's dentist. It wasn't Sparrow in the morgue. Oh, sure, sure. He was out shooting people. But if it wasn't Sparrow, who was it? The night watchman, Gleason. Oh-ho! You mean instead of Gleason knocking off Sparrow, it was Sparrow which knocked off Gleason. That's right, Louie. Then he emptied Gleason's pockets and put his own papers in them. He hoped that would result in the police looking for Gleason. Yeah. He also hoped it would throw Collins and Rigo off. Well, it did. Until he could kill them and keep the jewels for himself. It's yeah, a very low type. <laughs> Only you must have known before you caught Sparrow. On account of, you know, you told the cops to look up that dentist? So how did you know? Well, obviously, Sparrow was in a hurry after he killed Gleason. The shots might have been heard. Therefore, he didn't have time to change clothes with the dead man. All he could do was empty Gleason's pockets of everything that might have identified him and substitute his own identification. And then he hoped the water in the fishes would make it impossible to identify Gleason, huh? Uh-huh. But that still don't tell me... Louie, Louie, it was what? too pat. What? The only thing in a corpse's pocket turned out to be his identification papers. A corpse otherwise unrecognizable? Oh, it's too pat, and therefore... And therefore a fake, sure, okay. Yeah, but there's something else you have to explain. Which is why ain't that beautiful blonde with you? Susan? Yeah. Oh, she's in conference at headquarters. Is that so? Yes. Who says a policeman's lot is not a happy one? listening to another transcribed adventure of the saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. And now, here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in tonight's cast, you heard Sheila Bromley as Susan and Ted DeCorthia as Rico. Sidney Miller played the night watchman Gleason. And Peter Leeds played Collins. Harry Bartell was the lieutenant and Harry Brown the policeman. Louis is played by Larry Dobkin. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at this same time for another exciting adventure of the saint. Good night. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, is a James L. Safter production and is directed by Helen Mack. Vincent Price is soon to be seen co-starring with Errol Flynn and Michelin Prell in Mar uh, William Marshall's production of Bloodline. All you Saint fans will be glad to know that the Saint comic books are on sale at all newsstands. This is Don Stanley speaking.
Three chimes mean good times on NBC. All you listeners are invited to another gala broadcast later today of The Big Show, NBC's Sunday listening treat. The unpredictable Tallulah's famous guests for The Big Show today include everybody's favorite, Jimmy Durante, the clever Milton Berle, Ethel Merman, and Gordon McRae with songs you like to hear, and many, many more stars and entertainers. Your big Sunday lineup today also includes a splendid one-hour presentation of the comedy The Man in Possession, bringing you as it stars the famous acting team of Rex Harrison and Lily Palmer on Theater Guild on the Air. And enjoy the Phil Harris Show later on NBC. I was hired to find a blackmailer, and I did. But first I found a badly beaten Adonis, a Jezebel with an accent, and a man who had been an easy mark for murder. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Easy Mark. I'd spent a dull day on a duller subject, which was don't get caught with your income tax return down at midnight, March 15th. After calling time for a thick stake designated to bolster the stamina of a private detective, but nevertheless non-deductible, I reluctantly headed back to my office where I found both my conscience and the long-form 1040 still waiting, which meant there was no way out. The dull day was going to stretch on into the night, but then I got a break, because my telephone rang and the call was from one Mrs. Corey Gilbert, a prospective client who wanted action in a hurry. Marlo, you've got to move fast. I just found out that my husband, Ross, will be at 3806 Melrose Avenue in 20 minutes, and I know that means trouble. Well, just for size, Mrs. Gilbert, how do you spell trouble? With a capital B, as in blackmail. There's no time for details now. Just get to that address and find out who Ross is meeting with. Only hurry, Marlo, please. Well, hurry after what, Mrs. Gilbert? I've never met your husband, remember? Oh, oh, yes. Well, he's tall, dark eyes, dark hair, very handsome. And the blackmailer, short, stocky, and repulsive, I suppose. I've never seen the blackmailer. All right, Mrs. Gilbert, where can I reach you? Well, I live at 439 and a half Ogden Drive. Ogden the Drive. phone number is Gladstone 8195. 8195. All right, Mrs. Gilbert, I'll call you. Thanks. Oh, and Marlo. Yeah? Hurry, will you? You see, I... I love my husband. I was a little more than 20 minutes finding the address on Melrose. But when I finally pulled up and parked away from the place, I figured being late didn't matter because... Number 3806 turned out to be an unfinished house set deep in an acre of building materials. I was about to head for a telephone and get an explanation from a confused lady named Corey Gilbert when a lot of noise from what would someday be a living room changed my mind. Then I knew that my client had the right address after all because there in the pale light of a slice of moon taking the last of an awful beating from a thin man with a thick beard and a lot of muscle was Ross Gilbert. Dark eyes and dark hair like she said but no longer very handsome. Don't! Don't hit me again! Stop worrying, Gilbert! I'm almost through with you except for this! A present from Nanette! And just one more from Nanette! I'd 
last punch stacked Ross Kilburn onto a pile of rough lumber like he was another one by twelve. And as he slowly scraped to the floor unconscious, Thickbeard dusted himself off lightly, jerked at his tie, and stepped out of the opening reserved for a future front door. I started over to help Ross Gilbert, but then I remembered that my client wanted to know who her husband was meeting and why, not how hard or fast he could swing. So I decided for the time being to play it quiet. When Thickbeard got into his car, I got into mine. I followed him all the way to Beverly Hills, where he pulled to a stop in front of the Camden Arms Court. I parked lights out and watched him strut up a flagstone walk and knock on the door of a bungalow number four, which was dark. When he knocked again and it stayed dark, he took an envelope out of his pocket, wrote something on it, and jammed it into the mailbox. Then he got back into his car and started away fast. I walked up to the bungalow and helped myself to Thickbeard's empty envelope. On one side, scrawled in pencil and smudged, was the telephone number Sunset 31676. On the other, payment delivered okay, plumber. Plumber, huh? I shoved the message into my pocket, struck a match, and started looking for a name on the front door. But then a cab pulled up, and a moment later I had help. I can be of some assistance, perhaps? Yes, I, I was just... Oh. Uh. <laughs> Nanette? Oui. Nanette Lamarck. But I do not know you, monsieur. No. No, you don't. I, um... I think if you will stop staring and begin talking, we will do much better. Who are you? Uh, Philip Marlowe, a friend of Plummer's. He asked me to deliver a message for him. Do I go on? Of course, Mr. Marlowe. But please come inside. It is so much nicer there. <laughs> Nanette was so right about it being nicer inside. There were lights. And that made it easier to see that the lady with the thick French accent and the gorgeous waistline was something that could have mustered her own foreign legion. She was narrow green eyes and open red lips, topped by a lot of close-cropped soft brown curls that kept running into each other. And for a dress, she was wearing about a quarter of a mile of draped chiffon that, in the right places, fitted a little closer than her own skin. When I told her what I claimed had been a message from Plummer himself, she purred her thanks and started to mix me a drink. When I brought up the subject of blackmail, she stopped abruptly, spilling a bottle of perfectly good Kentucky tavern all over the table. Blackmail? What do you mean, Mallow? Extortion, honey. The malpractice of getting a lot for knowing a little that's not nice. <laughs> You're swinging wild now, mon cher. Maybe. But if it doesn't bother you, I'll stay right with it. Because I'd like to know why you and Plummer, who have such an easy mark, insist on throwing rocks. What easy mark are you talking about? A tall, dark, and used to be handsome guy named Ross Gilbert. Ross? Soda, Marlowe? Yeah. But don't make it too sweet, honey. I can't take it that way. Nanette will be very careful not to make it too sweet. There. Tell me, mon cher, when did you last see Plummer? Uh, before tonight, I mean. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was at the fights over at the Legion Stadium last week. How do I get my drink? Oui, mon cher. You will get your drink in your face, <coughs> liar! <coughs> oh, tell me, Frenchie. Is that Pearl Handle 32 considered the very latest along the Champs-Élysées? You have lied to me, mon ami. You see, Plummer only arrived in Los Angeles the day before yesterday. 
for the first time in his life. All right, I made a mistake about seeing Plummer at the fights last week. Now, why don't you put away the gun and we'll talk about Ross Gilbert. Ross Gilbert is a man I hate with all my heart. A man I could kill right this minute. And that Marlowe goes for anyone connected with him. So now get out. Oh, without even so much as an au revoir? I reserve au revoir for my friends, Marlowe. Good night. Hello? Marlowe, Mrs. Gilbert, is Ross all right? Ross isn't here, Marlowe. What happened to him? He ran into an ugly beating at that address on Melrose. Something nasty from out of town named Plummer is responsible. Ever hear of him and or an imported Jezebel called Nanette Lamarck? No, I haven't. But what about Ross? What's wrong with him? Nothing that a pound of beefsteak and enough liniment can't cure. But before we worry about Ross, Mrs. Gilbert, one more thing. It's a phone number I found on the back of an envelope that belonged to Plummer. Number is Sunset 31676. What? Somebody you know? Someone I know very well. It's the telephone number of my ex-husband, Emery Marsh. Emery Marsh, huh? Fancy dress designer on Wilshire? That's right. But what's he got to do with all this? Emery only met Ross once in Mexico, a party at Ensenada. Yeah, well, look, Mrs. Gilbert, why don't we postpone collecting Ross until I find out a little more? Where does your uh, ex-husband Marsh live? In Santa Monica. But there's a good chance that he's still at his place on Wilshire. He does most of his work at night. Well, then Wilshire Boulevard's my next stop. I'll try to make it a quick one. Goodbye. Emery Marsh's place on Wilshire was an expensive shop with a single velvet-lined show window that was home for a beautiful mannequin wearing an evening gown that would drop at the first sneeze. And after I spent five minutes thumping on a plush leather-upholstered portal, a light finally clicked on someplace inside. And a moment later, Emery Marsh opened the door. He was tall, 45, sandy-haired, and looked less like a dress designer than I did. So after following his tweet back into an inner sanctum that was combed plywood behind Chinese modern furniture, I decided to play it almost straight. Now, Mr. Marlowe, what can I do for you? Well, it's a little too early to tell. I'm a private detective, Mr. Marsh, and I'm working for your ex-wife, Corey Gilbert. Corey? Mm-hmm. Is she in trouble, Mr. Marlowe? No, no, close to it. Tell me, Mr. Marsh, when you were last over to Nanette Lamarck's place at Camden Arms, when was that? Nanette Lamarck? Yeah. I've never heard of her. Nor a man named Plummer? Nor a man named Plummer. Who are they? Well, in the order I tossed them out, a mademoiselle with a touchy temper and a thug who needs a shave. I don't understand. How do they concern me? Well, maybe they don't. But your telephone number turned up on Plummer. Both Plummer and Nanette are tied on to a man who at this moment is probably picking himself up off the floor of an unfinished house at 3806 Melrose Avenue. His name, Mr. Marsh, is Ross Gilbert. Gilbert? Yes, that's right. What do you know about him? Very little. I only met him once at the Riviera Pacifico. Riviera Pacifico? The hotel at Ensenada in Mexico. Mm. Matter of fact, it was the same night that he met Corey. Which didn't make you very happy. Uh, No, you've got it wrong. Corey and I were already divorced. The three of us meeting was nothing more than an accident. Oh. And when Ross and Corey parlayed that accident into marriage, were you still smiling? Better than that, Mr. Marlowe. When that happened a month ago, I was grinning. You see, until then, I had been paying Corey $1,200 a month alimony for two and a half years. Mm. And Corey gave all that up for love and Ross Gilbert, huh? Uh, Ross Gilbert isn't exactly a pauper, Mr. Marlowe. No, I guess not. Blackmailing a pauper doesn't add up. Uh, what did you say, Mr. Marlowe? 
I said putting the bite on somebody who has nothing is like sucking a lollipop with a cellophane on it. You get action, but no results, you see? Oh. Now, tell me, why does the word blackmail come home to roost, Mr. Marsh? You wouldn't happen to know who the guilty party is, would you? No, Mr. Marlowe. And what's more, if I did, I certainly wouldn't keep that sort of thing to myself. Oh, no, I don't think you would. Well, thanks anyway, Mr. Marsh. You've been a big help. I'm glad. And if I can be of any further help, don't hesitate to call on me, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, please. No, I won't, Mr. Marsh. You can depend on it. from Wilshire Boulevard to Mrs. Gilbert's place on Ogden Drive, I kept wondering who wanted how much out of Ross Gilbert and why. About 20 minutes later, when I pulled up in front of the house, I started concentrating on my client, who had to be the woman standing next to a green coupe in the driveway and waiting in double time. Corey Gilbert was long, flowing blonde hair draped over shoulders that at the moment looked like they were carrying the weight of the world. But she was prettier worried than most women who always keep it gay. Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, Mrs. Gilbert? Yes. Your husband shown up yet? No. Marlowe, what do you suppose Take it happened? easy. Maybe we'd better have another look at uh, 3806 Melrose Avenue, huh? Whatever you say. Shall I drive? If you've got a license. Yes, Mr. Marlowe. I've got a license. Well, okay, let's go. <laughs> The way we took off in Corey's Nash, I wasn't sure whether her license was for driving a car or an airplane. And while she kept her 83 and a half AAA on the accelerator, she talked about her husband and why she was worried. By the time we were near the place, I knew all about the party in Ensenada, their whirlwind courtship, and what a fine guy Ross Gilbert was. When we got out of the car and started over the last hundred yards toward the unfinished house... I'd learned everything Corey knew about the blackmail angle, which wasn't very much. It started last week, Marla, when we got back from our honeymoon. Ross wasn't himself at all. He was worried. He forgot how to laugh. He argued with me over any and everything. Mm. Where does the blackmail come in? I don't know. He wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Then this evening, just before I called you, I overheard him talking on the telephone. That's when I caught the word blackmail and this address. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe Ross will be able to fill in a few of the blanks for us. Oh, he was over here in this room on a pile of lumber when I... must have done a lot more damage than I figured. Ross! Ross! Take it easy. Take it easy, baby. Marlowe, what is it? Is he... Is he... I'm afraid he is, Corey. That man! That man! He beat him to death! No, Corey, that round hole in Gilbert's chest wasn't made by a fist. From where I stand, it looks like a thirty-two caliber bullet. just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, for some new wrinkles in the mystery field, look on the face of Mr. Jack Benny, eminent producer of the mystery comedy The Lucky Stiff, which opened in New York today. Although Mr. Benny's stars are Dorothy L'Amour, Claire Trevor, and Brian Donlevy, Jack's face is covered with new wrinkles, because he couldn't be in New York to sell the tickets himself. He's remaining in Hollywood to appear tomorrow night on CBS on The Jack Benny Show with Mary Livingston, Don Wilson, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, and Rochester. So be sure to listen. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Easy Mark. 
Gilbert's face went sickly white, and her mouth twisted on the brink of hysteria as she stared at the dead man. I turned her away from it and led her to a window. She did the fastest job of pulling herself together I'd ever seen. And I went back to the body. On the way, I noticed a folded scrap of paper on the floor. It was a page torn out of a desk diary, but all that was written on it was the address of the unfinished house we were in. I looked down at what had once been Ross Kilbert. Setup didn't make any sense. A victim of blackmail had been beaten up by a total stranger, and then, a little while later, murdered. Somebody had killed a goose that was laying the golden eggs, and it didn't figure in any direction. Well, I just about decided to go through his pockets when a sound from Corey changed my mind. <gasps> Marlow! Marlow, come here, quick! What is it, Corey? There's someone out there. I saw a shadow move. Get away from the window. Marlow, there, running. Why, it's a woman. Yeah, and quite a woman. What do you know? She's crossing the street now. Who is it, Marlow? Who is she? Character as French as Milani's 1890. Only she's more like nitric acid than cellar dressing, Corey. Her name is Nanette Lamarck. She's getting in that car. Aren't you going to stop her? No. I've got a line on Miss Lamarck. I can find her. But she was hiding here. She could be the one who shot Ross, couldn't she? Easily. In fact, right now, she's the odds-on favorite. But she's also cagey, and we'll have better luck if we get her on home ground where she'll talk. Besides, there's a big chunk of this business that doesn't follow. What do you mean? Well, look, the murder came out in reverse. Ross was paying off. So he should have been the killer instead of the corpse. Which means there's more than blackmail involved. I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is he's dead and, and, and that woman killed him. Maybe. Come on, Corey, let's get out of here. Where are we going? Well, first you take me back to my car and then I got a job for you to do. What kind of a job? Well, I found this page ripped out of a desk diary, probably Ross's. I want you to go through all his things and find that diary for me. There might be something else in it that'll give us a connection. All right. Where are you going? I'm going to pay a call on Nanette. Only this time I'm bringing my own welcome mat. I think I'll need it. After Corey dropped me off, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide, reported the body, and then I got into my own car and drove out to Beverly Hills again, to the Camden Arms Court. Annette's bungalow had lights on. I parked down the street and made tracks back through the landscaping to a side window. Annette was playing pinup girl on the arm of a divan as she watched someone pace back and forth across the room. When I got close enough to hear what was being said, that someone turned out to all be right, Corey Gilbert's right. first husband, People Emery Marsh. My chickens with their heads off. So Ross Gilbert was shot to death. But I've got to know the truth about one thing, Miss Lamarck. My entire life's work is at stake. Can't you understand? All right, Monsieur Marsh. Do not break out into tears, I will tell you. Plummer is merely a private investigator I hired to, to locate Ross Gilbert for me. Now, are you happy? No. Why did such a person have my telephone number? That's what I want to know. I'll be ruined if I'm involved in this mess. My reputation means everything to my business, and, well, things aren't going too well just now. If I'm connected with a scandal, I'll be wiped out. Well, stop worrying. I saw you with Ross Gilbert three or four times before he disappeared. So I gave your name to Plummer as a, as a possible lead to Ross. That is all. Why did you want to find Ross Gilbert? That, mon ami, is none of your business. You found out what you wanted, so good night. All right. I'll go. But can I count on you to keep my name out of this? Listen... I am counting on me to keep my own name out of it. And I will be very busy doing that. Good night. I plastered myself up against the side of the house and watched Emery Marsh leave. He looked anything but happy over the result of his interview with Nanette, but I figured I had the benefit of experience to work with and less to lose than he had. So I waited until he was out of sight, and then I stepped up to the door, braced myself, and tried my luck. Again. Yeah, and I want to talk to you. Get your foot out of my door. Ow. Oh, 
So we've had a nice, quiet chat, Nanette, and I think we'll take up where Emery Marsh left off. What? Look, just who exactly are you, Marlow? Your boy, Plummer, and I are distant fraternity brothers, but there the similarity ends. Just another chief private detective. Ooh. Okay, baby, if that tough stuff's the only language you understand, we'll talk that. Oh, stop it. Leave me alone. Now get over there. Sit down. Oh, oh you, you ape. I'd be nice to me if I were you, Nanette. Because I just love to see a rope around that lovely neck of yours. And what's more, I can almost put one there. You're in a mess right up to your accent. So start making answers beautiful and keep them straight. First, why did you put Plummer on Ross Gilbert's trail? Because he double-crossed me, that is why. Double-crossed you how? He ran away from me. He was mine, all bought and paid for, you understand? Not exactly. When I met him, he was flat broke. I bought him every decent stitch of clothes that he had. Gave him everything he needed to be a gentleman, because we were going to be married. And then he ran out on me and took everything with him that he could lay his hands on. Go on. Nobody does that to Nanette Lamarck, nobody. So you hired that licensed thug plumber to find him and beat him half to death, right? Exactly. Well, go ahead, baby. The story doesn't end there. Tell me the rest, the good part. About how you waited until Plummer got through with him, and then you went down to that unfinished blueprint out of House and Gardens and killed him. No. No, that is not true. I, I did not do that. I, I could not. That's no bigger lie than the rest of it. Why is that pearl handle 32 of yours, Nanette? And don't reach for it. Just tell me. What do you want with it? I want to see if it's been fired. Now, where is it? Call it, Jack. Oh, fine. Plummer. Miss Lamarck might not like for you to see her gun. Oh, I thought you would never get here. Who's this character, Miss Lamarck? Another private detective. Marlow by name. No kidding. Well, we got a lot in common, haven't we, Jack? Yes, yes. We've each got two arms and two legs. And the name is Phil. Oh, that's the way it is, huh? Well, listen, Jack. You got no business here in the first place. For two cents, I'll chop you down. You're even cheaper than I figured. Why, you, you can put big... away that big nasty gun, too, because I got you cold. That envelope you stuck in Nanette's mailbox tonight had a slip of paper inside one of your old clients. Huh? What are, you, what are you talking about? Can't you guess? Hey, you want to see it? Well, yeah, yeah. Let's have a look at that. Okay. Take a good look. <laughs> Come on, drop the gun, Plummer. Come on, drop it. My arm! All right, now, fold up. There's your bargain basement detective, Nanette. You didn't get your money's worth, did you? Now, shall we take a look at that pearl-handled gun of yours? It is over there in my bag. Thanks. Clips full and that smell sure isn't gunpowder. Of course not. I did not kill Ross. Why, I was not even inside of that building where he was. Yeah, I know, but you... Wait a minute. Say that again. I said I was never inside that unfinished house where he was found. When I drove up, you were already there, so I left. Yeah, yeah, I know. And Plummer's gun is... Uh-huh. Fully loaded. Hasn't been fired either. Baby, you've just given me a great idea. An idea? But I do not understand. Never mind, I'll explain it to you later. And incidentally, you better be around. Right now, I've got to find out one more thing, and then maybe I'll pop this whole shebang wide open. Mr. Marlowe. Good evening, Mr. Marsh. Lucky to find you still working, huh? Late hours are a habit with me these days. Come in. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Marsh, I've come back for that help you offered me earlier this evening. I see. Well, the offer's still good. Fine. I think your ex-wife, Corey, is lying to me. She claims you didn't know Ross Gilbert, that you only met him once at that party in Ensenada, but you did know him, didn't you? Why, yes. As a matter of fact, I did get acquainted with Ross slightly. We had dinner together a few times. Uh-huh. 
And you really did favor his marriage to Corey because it freed you automatically from that alimony load you were carrying. That's correct, Marlowe, but I don't And see... it's also correct, isn't it, that you couldn't afford to go to court to have your alimony reduced because that would let your snobbish clientele know you were going on the rocks. Yes, that's also true. And maybe it's true that you actually engineered the marriage and it backfired on you. Very smart, Mr. Marlowe. Just keep your hands at your side. This might go off. Yeah, oh, yes. Well, I expected a reaction, but not quite so soon. Too bad. I'll trouble you for your gun, now that you've got it all figured out. Yes, Marlowe, I engineered that marriage. Corey was attracted to Gilbert, but he was broke. I knew that would scare Corey off if she found out. So you and Corey made a deal, particularly with Ross. He wanted to marry Corey. You supplied the cash for his courtship, right? Yes. Only he wouldn't stop there. He kept demanding more. Sure, that figured from the start. Ross wasn't being blackmailed. He was the blackmailer himself, and that made you worse off than before, so you killed him. You're so right, Mr. Marlowe. And remember, the price for two murders is the same as for one. So you've really left me no alternative. I'll give you an alternative, Emery! (laughs) Corey! One thing you didn't count on. I really loved Ross Gilbert. Well, I guess that winds it up, Corey. Emery's in the hospital, and Nanette and Plummer are both in the clink. Too bad I only hit Emery in the hand. I never could trust my aim. It's always been bad, in a lot of ways. It was good enough tonight, baby. Lucky for me you showed up when you did. Say, what made you come to Marsha's place, anyway? Well, that page from the desk diary paid off, Marlowe. Only we made a mistake. Oh? It didn't come from Ross's diary. It came from Emery's. I finally remembered his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Now, you tell me something, Marlowe. Yeah. How did you know Emery was guilty? Oh. Well, he made the oldest slip in the book. When he was talking to Nanette, I overheard him say that Ross had been shot. Oh. Emery had no way of knowing that Gilbert was dead or how he'd been killed unless Nanette told him. And for a while, I thought she had, but then... I found out that she couldn't have because she'd never been inside the house where we found Ross. So it had to be Emery. Sure. I see. Well, Marlo, uh, what does a gal say at the end of a night like this? Thanks or something? Just thanks will be enough. <laughs> I gotta do my income tax. Can I give you a lift? No. No, I'll walk a while. I've got some thinking to do about marksmanship. But call me sometime later on, will you? Just to see if I'm shooting in the right direction. You can count on it, Corey. Thanks. Good night, Phil. I watched her for a moment as she walked down the street all by herself, deep in her own thoughts, and it looked to me like she was playing it strictly square. I almost wanted to follow her. (laughs) The first time in a long time, I felt like I wanted to get to know a client better. But March 15th can slip up awfully fast, and that long-form 1040 was still unfinished and waiting for me in my office. So I decided to go back and work on my income tax and play it strictly square, too. After all, that's really the easiest way in the long run. Yeah, I keep telling myself.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced by Norman MacDonald. The script by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt was directed by Ralph Rose. Featured in the cast were Sylvia Sims, Lorette Philbrandt, Ken Harvey, and Paul Duboff. The special music was by Richard O'Runt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... There was a man with a bad heart, a telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt, and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized they were all tied together by the same long rope, worth $30,000. Next Wednesday evening, February 2nd, CBS will bring you a moving, powerful drama of a reporter who took an assignment he eagerly sought, only to find it came too close to home. Its title is Mind in the Shadow, its star is Eddie Albert, and its story tells how the reporter set out to reveal the shocking facts about our mental hospitals, and then learned that his lovely young wife might have to enter one. Based on actual documentary evidence of conditions existing today, you'll find Mind in the Shadow, a revealing story of something which could happen to you. Hear Mind in the Shadow, starring Eddie Albert, next Wednesday evening, over most of the same CBS network stations. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, Jack Benny's new address, Sunday night on CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. With the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Box 13, care of Star Times. Please meet me at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon in front of the Mercantile Building. You can do me a tremendous favor, perhaps change the whole course of my life. I shall be wearing a brown gabardine suit, and I'll be carrying a forest green suede I'll be carrying a forest green suede handbag. That was all. No name, no initials. Just the letter. Well, it didn't sound like much of an adventure. Brother, but how I could have used a crystal ball in good working order. And now, back to Box 13 and Dan Holliday's newest adventure... Look pleasant, please. Gee, Mr. Holliday, doesn't look particularly thrilling, but I guess it's like the old age. Huh? The what? The old age. You know, when somebody says something smart that means something different from what it says, only it's the same thing. Oh. Oh. On your next trip around the office, fix that one up, Susie. What? <laughs> Never mind. Just save up for your adage. Okay? Okay. Hey, I can just make it to the mercantile building by two o'clock. So long, Susie. There were lots of people standing in front of the building, but only one girl in a brown gabardine suit, green hat, and handbag. I didn't walk up to her right away because, well, I wanted to take a good look. And what I saw was good. 
maybe about 24, slender, lots and lots of brown hair that fell down from that cute hat in a nice way. Her clothes spelled money with two capital M's. Well, I walked over to her. Good afternoon. Oh, oh. I'm the man from Box 13. Oh, thank you. Look, I, I know this sounds terribly foolish and silly, but I do want your help, uh, Mr... Mr... Holiday. Dan Holiday. Oh, all right, Mr. Holiday. Do you have half an hour to spare? Well, the afternoon's young, and I can wear it away to an old age. That answer your question? Yes, it does. Do you photograph well, Mr. Holiday? Huh? Well, my baby pictures always turned out pretty good. Of course, that was a little while ago, and I... Look, I want you to have your photograph taken with me. Oh, is that all? Yes, that's all. Of course, I'll pay you for your time and trouble. Oh, no, no, no. My time's my own, and what trouble I get into is usually my own fault. <laughs> all right, Mr. Holliday. There's a photographer in this building. He's ready for us. Oh, by the way, what's your name? Uh, Jones. Uh, Mary Jones. Oh. You know, Miss Jones, a writer often spends hours thinking of the right name for the characters in his stories. But here you come along, and without batting an eye, think up a very unusual one. Do you have to know my real name? Well, I'll live without it, but Will I... Will you do it, Mr. Holliday? All right, Miss Jones. Let's go look at the birdie. The photographer was ready, and it didn't take long for him to run off three shots. Miss Jones paid him, and the two of us went back downstairs. Out on the pavement, I turned to her, and I guess she read the look on my face. Please don't ask me why, Mr. Holliday. Goodbye, and thanks very much. Well, before I could move my feet, she was into a cab and gone. If this was it, I'd just chalked up the shortest adventure on record. There was nothing to do but go home and mark it off to experience. <laughs> yeah, that's where it should have stopped. The next morning, I walked into my office as usual and... Hey, 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 what is this, Susie? You could have told me. Told you what? I quit. You didn't trust me. Oh, Susie, will you stop? Oh, and the phone's been ringing all morning. Everybody wants to know about it. About what? Just answer the phone and find out, you... you... Careful, Susie, careful. Hello. Good morning, lover boy. Oh, Cling. Well, how's the police department? It's bright and early. It's not good to hear your voice. I called for information. Yeah, what kind? What about? Well, shall I wear my organdy hat and crepe machine badge? What are you talking about? What is the matter with everyone? Well, nothing, Angel Face. All's well with the world. And about 15 million bucks. Everybody's crazy. <laughs> yeah, everybody but you. Oh, nice going, Holiday. Nice going. Am I invited or... Don't you want cops? It might make the thing look bad, you know. In two seconds, Kling, I'm going to hang up on you. What goes? Don't you ever read the papers? Or don't you know what's going on in your life? Now listen, I... Oh, go arrest somebody. <laughs> now look, Susie, what's this all about? Look at the morning paper. All right, I'm looking at... Holy mackerel. She... She's awful pretty. Be quiet, Susie. Prominent heiress announces engagement to Dan Holliday. Dan Holliday, that's me. That, that, that's my picture with her. Sure it is. I've been framed. Oh, but you wouldn't frame a newspaper picture, would you? Shh. Marcia Jameson. 
beautiful heiress to Jameson Lumber Fortune announces engagement. You, you're, you're just a, a demijohn. Don Juan. Oh, one of the two. But you could have told me. I could have told myself. Susie, if that phone rings anymore, don't answer it until I get this thing cleared up. One way or another. Goodbye. I got Marcia Jameson's address from the society editor at the Star Times, and a half hour later, I was ushered into the big library at the Jameson home. Sitting behind the desk was a youngish-looking man. He rose to meet me as I walked into the room. Ah, oh, Mr. Holliday. I'm very happy to know you. Yeah, I wish I could say the same. I beg your pardon? Where's Miss Jameson? I've asked her to come down. Good. <laughs> I, uh, I suppose I'd better introduce myself. I'm Roger Jameson, Marsha's uncle and guardian. Well, she needs one. I, I don't understand. Well, that makes two of us. Suppose we pool our facts and get one good twisted story out of them. Mr. Holliday, you're acting very strangely. I must say that my niece's choice of a husband is, well, peculiar. All right, I'm peculiar. At parties, I'm a standout, but I'd like to... Dan, Dan, darling, how nice of you to come this morning. What did you expect? You, of course. You've met Uncle Roger? Yes, Marcia, we've met. Oh, I want you two to like each other. Oh, fine. I love everybody in the world, but well, I... Uncle Roger, could I speak to Dan alone, please? Certainly, Marcia. You'll stay for lunch, Mr. Holliday? No, thank you. Oh, yes, he will, Uncle Roger. Good. We'll have a long talk. Now, Miss Jameson. Why did you come here? Maybe you haven't seen the morning paper. Mr. Holliday, Dan, help me. I did, and I've got engaged. Look, Miss Jameson, I... Uh, Marcia. I don't know you that well. We just became engaged this morning. Dan, it's imperative that you act as my fiancé until after the 16th of this month. Well, what happens then? Oh, Dan, if you'll just do what I ask, until the 16th. On that day, I... uh, Yes, come in. Lunch is ready any time. You are staying, Mr. Holliday. Uh, yes, he'll stay, Uncle Roger. One more lunch like that, and I'd have had indigestion for the rest of my life. Uncle Roger was very curious about me. He asked a lot of questions, which Marsha answered. Then, when I was ready to leave. Well, of course, Mr. Holliday, this engagement came as a complete surprise to me. I had no idea you and Marsha even knew each other. Well, I get around a lot, Mr. Jameson. You'd better call me Roger, Dan. Yes, there's nothing like being friendly. Well, I, I'm sure Dan has a lot of things to do this afternoon, Uncle Roger. We'd better let him go. Of course. We'll have plenty of time to talk about things, Dan. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Uh, Roger. Oh, thank you, Dan. You were wonderful. Uh, superb, considering I didn't know where the ball was half the time. We'll wait until the 16th, won't you? It's five days from now. Meanwhile, what do I tell my friends? And where do I stack the wedding presents? Well, you can always say we broke up. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll tell you something else, Dan. Can there be anything else? I, I almost wish the whole thing were true. Goodbye, Dan. And with that, I was left standing on the elegant steps of the Jameson Castle... Well, I could have put the whole thing on the line and cleared up the situation. It'd have been easy. Just deny it. Tell the whole story. Or I could stay in the play and see what the score was. I walked down the stairs, then glanced back and looked up at a window and right into Uncle Roger's eyes. Before I could smile, he let the curtains fall back in place. Okay, that made up my mind. 
Curiosity killed a cat, they say. All right. Yeah. Well, Danny, welcome to the Star Times. And what brings you into the morgue? Jonesy, I, I want to do some research. So you came to the right place. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thanks. That's a lot of dough you're marrying. Yeah. Kind of sudden, wasn't it? Known her a long time? Jonesy, I feel as though it was just yesterday. Now, get me everything you've got on her. Huh? You're going to look up your own fiancé? Yep. What's the idea? Kind of silly, isn't it? Well, it's your business. I can put my fingers right on the stuff you want. You got much? All here. Matter of fact, I was reading about it this morning. When I heard you were marrying her, I did some work. And? Well, on the 16th of this month, she comes into about 15 million. What? Yeah. But she has to be married by then. Oh. Uh, how come? Her father's will says so. If she doesn't marry by the 16th of this month, this year, her 15 million goes to, uh, oh, uh, Roger Jameson, uncle. Oh, ho. You didn't know? I don't know a lot of things. What else have you got, Jonesy? She had kind of bad luck before. Yes, what kind? Engaged twice before, and uh, both her fiancés had accidents. Bad? Yeah. Dead? Well, if they weren't, they had an awful dirty trick played on them. What? They were buried. And now, back to Look Pleasant, Please. Another Box 13 adventure with Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Well, there I was, all wide-eyed and innocent, engaged to marry a girl whose last two fiancés had lots of bad luck. For myself, I wasn't anxious to inherit any of that. But I had to find out a little more. So I went back to the Jameson place. The butler recognized me and let me in without announcing me. I walked down the hall and heard voices in the library. Ordinarily, keyhole listening would have been out, but, well, I heard my name, door was open, so... I tell you, Dan, we'll go through with it. Oh, Dan. Dan, first name already, huh? Oh, don't be silly, Charles. I, I've got to convince everyone he is my fiancé. Well, what if he backs out before the 16th? He won't. What makes you so sure? I know. Oh? Huh? Oh, don't be stupid, Charles. I'm not stupid. I'm just careful. Darling, darling, you know better. Well, I... All right, Marsha. Now, you'd really better go, Charles. After all, you know... As they say in Alice in Wonderland... Curiouser and curiouser. I was wondering about it when Charles came toward the door. I backed away and ducked into another room. Well, where is Dan now? I don't know, Charles, but you'd better get back to the office or Uncle Roger will miss you. All right, darling. Bye. I'll tell you when and where we can meet again, sweetheart. Uh-huh. You know, I'm fussy about uh, these things. Oh, the devil it... The name's Holiday, Charlie. I'm engaged to Marsha. How, how did you get in? The front door. It works. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Charles, kissing another man's betrothed. Well, I... Uh, now, look, Dan, I, I... Oh, you you go on, Charles. Dan, I want to explain something. They could stand it. Now, look, Holiday, I... Go on, Charles. Oh, very well. I'll see you. 
will you come into the library, Dan? But I've got a book. Oh, please, I owe you an explanation. Okay. All right, go ahead. Well, Charles is... Charles is the man you love. Is that the line you're hunting for? Yes. All right, that's the first I'll leave out of the bottle. The rest should be easy. But it isn't. You see, Dan, your life's in danger. Yes, I gathered that from the things I read a while ago. You, you read? Yes, the newspaper files. Oh. oh, Dan, if you want to, you can back out. Uh-huh, I know. But maybe I'm more than a little curious. But you, you know about, about my two fiancés. Extinct. Uncle Roger killed them, or had them killed. And Uncle Roger knows nothing about Charles? No. And the aforementioned uncle thinks I'm fiancé number three in order of appearance. Uncle tries to put a block on me while Charles goes for a touchdown, right? Oh, you make it sound so brutal, heartless. Got any other words for it? You and Charles live happily ever after. I don't. All right, all right, you can do as you please. I was going to, to ask you to go through with it. But I, I can't. So, before I left, I promised Marsh I'd stick it out another day. Okay, I'm a sucker. But if Uncle Roger was going to toss a curve, I'd at least be waiting for it. But before I went any further, I called on Lieutenant Kling, told him what was up. He was very sympathetic. <laughs> oh, what a story. <laughs> <laughs> Strikes you funny, huh? Yeah. All I want to know is, was there anything that might have tied the uncle in with the deaths of Marcia's fiancés? Yeah, no. You're sure? Sure I am. When I read about your uh, engagement, I remembered her name. And? Those deaths were accidents. And the uncle? Clean. Look, Clean, maybe he's smart. Yeah, could be. There are lots of smart people in the world. Oh, but I'm not one of them. Is that it? Look, Holiday, I warned you that someday your box 13 routine would land you in a slippery spot. Okay, it's up to you to keep your footing. Kling, suppose, just suppose I lead with my chin and Uncle Roger takes a poke at it. Would that open up the other two cases? Sure. All right. Maybe I'll do it. Holiday. What? I, uh, well, uh, look, uh, take it easy. Why, Lieutenant, you sound concerned for me. I'd miss having to hold your hand every once in a while. Well, what are you going to do now? Call on Uncle Roger and make like a sucker. Well, Dan, sit down, won't you? Thanks, Roger. <laughs> you know, it's going to be quite a treat seeing Marcia married. Yes, after two unhappy beginnings before. Oh, you know about those? Marcia told you, I suppose. In a way, yes. Mm-hmm. You, um, you wanted to see me about something, Dan? Oh, just a social call. If you're busy, I can... Oh, no, no, not at all. I was about to leave anyway. You know, Roger, it's, it's very strange. Strange? What is? You haven't asked me anything about myself. I don't have to, Dan. Meaning? I've been very busy since this morning. You see, I have quite a bit of influence. Connection, so to speak. And uh, they told you what? <laughs> Who you are, where you live, what you do for a living... Dan, how much do you love Marcia? I'm going to marry her. You have quite a good income, so it's not the money you're after. Obviously. Dan, I'd give anything in the world to see Marcia happy. We, well, we practically grew up together. There's only ten years difference in our ages. You see, my brother was 20 when I was born. 
I see. Marcia is my only living relative. Oh. Then I understand your concern for her. I'm glad you do. I want to show you something. Miss Claridge, bring in the Jameson estate papers, will you? Thank you. What's that for? Dan, you write mysteries, among other things. Consequently, I think you have a, a suspicious mind. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I'm Marsha's uncle, trustee of her fortune until she gets married, which must be by the 16th of this month. Now, surely in one of your stories, you must have written about a guardian who misappropriates funds, embezzles. No, I never have. <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter. You see, I... Uh, the estate papers, Mr. Jameson. I thought I asked Miss Claridge to bring them in. Oh, well, she was busy, and I was on my way past anyway. All right, Charles. Thank you. Oh, um, Charles, this is Dan Holliday, Marsha's fiancé. Dan, this is Charles Crane. How are you? Fine. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. Is that all, Mr. Jameson? Yes, that's all. Thank you. All right. Here are the papers. I think you'll find every penny accounted for. Everything in order, Dan? It looks like it. <laughs> We're going to get along, Dan. Get along beautifully. I wonder for how long. If Uncle Roger was planning on making me number three on his hit parade, he was playing it smart. Oh, he was smooth. Mm-hmm. So smooth that I stayed at a hotel that night. If Uncle Roger knew where I lived, I might have visitors. And of course, I didn't sleep much. There was a lot of thinking to do. And it added up to something funny. The next day was Saturday, and it came in handy because Uncle Roger's office was closed. And I wanted to see something there. I called on Marsha and told her. Maybe she was a little surprised. Why do you want to go through the files, Dan? I've got a hunch, Marcia. Maybe Uncle Roger didn't show me the right papers. For the estate? Yeah, that's it. Have you got a key to the office? I can get one, and one to the files. Mm, get them for me, will you? Say, uh, where's Uncle Roger today? Oh, on the yacht, anchored outside the harbor. You're to go there tomorrow night. Why? He's arranged an engagement party. Dan, if you don't want to go, if you want to back out now... <laughs> Nothing doing. I'm beginning to like this. All right, Marcia, give me the keys. Getting into the office was easy. I went to the files marked Jameson. Yeah, the papers were there, all right. But not the set Uncle Roger had shown me. These were different. What little I knew about finance showed me some fancy juggling had been going on. I was checking them carefully. A neat round hole appeared in the file case alongside my head. I ducked behind the cases and peeked around just in time to see the outer door to the office close. Somebody with a silenced gun played clay pigeon with me. So Uncle Roger was on the yacht, was he? When I got back out on the street, a storm had kicked up. I took a cab back to my apartment and phoned Marcia. She didn't answer. The butler said she had gone and Uncle Roger was on the yacht. Late in the evening, I received a note from Marcia. Dan, I'm terribly frightened. Uncle Roger insisted that I come to the yacht tonight. I'm writing this note from my cabin now. I know something dreadful will happen, so please, if you can, come at once. There are speedboats at the dock to take you out. But be careful, Dan. Be careful. 
Could have been a trap, but I compared the writing on this note with her first letter to box 13. Oh, it was hers, all right. Careful, neat, precise. Okay, if this was a showdown, might as well get it over with. When I got there, the yacht was pitching and rolling like a bad bronc with a burr under his saddle. That all-day storm hadn't let up a bit. Then I, I was on board, but nobody was in sight. There was one cabin with a light inside. I went to it, opened the door. Holiday, what are you doing here? Visiting. I don't understand. Didn't Marcia tell you the party was tomorrow night? I like to be early for appointments. Where is Marcia? What's the matter with you? She's not here. Oh, yes, she is. Have you gone crazy? Not yet. Sit down, Uncle Roger. Oh, all right. You know, Uncle Roger, I... I don't like being shot at. I don't know what you're talking about. Where is Marcia? Cut it out, I... I... Yes? What were you going to say? Well, what's the matter? Have you got a gun? A gun? Yes, but... Get it. Are you... Get it fast. It's not here. It's always in this desk drawer. Is this what you're looking for, Uncle Roger? Charles, what are you doing here? And you might ask him what he's doing with your gun. It is yours, isn't it? Well, it looks like it. <laughs> you don't think I'd kill you with my own gun, do you, Holiday? Very neat, Charlie, very neat. But the crew... Just two crewmen aboard. The rest won't be here until tomorrow. And that storm is convenient. <laughs> Lots of noise. <laughs> Something funny, Holiday? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You think you're going to get by with this, don't you? Is there anything to stop me? What is this all about? If this is a prank... Oh, no, Roger, not a joke. Definitely not. Charles and Marcia had it all planned very neatly. The accidents to her other fiancés gave these two beauties the idea. Charles fakes another set of papers to look as though you were embezzling and... What? Yeah, yeah. They make it look as though you can't afford to have her married by the 16th because if she doesn't marry, then the estate goes to you. And you're killed with my gun... That's it. And you're killed the same way. Charles muscles up this cabin to make it look as though there were a struggle. And All I... right, Holiday. Second guessing. Oh, no, Charlie. I'm not so dumb. I... You see, I called the police before I came aboard. You see, I guess... You're a liar. You couldn't know. Oh, but I could. Marcia's note gave it away. Marcia's note? Uh-huh. The note she was supposed to have written aboard this yacht. You see, her handwriting was neat, precise, careful. Charlie, uh... Ever try to write a neat hand on a pitching, rolling yacht? Can't be done. So I knew she wasn't aboard. And there was only one reason she'd want to get me here. To work this frame. And... Oh, hello, Lieutenant Kling. Lieutenant Kling. Oh, grab the gun. Holiday, is he? Uh, Charlie's gone bye-bye for a little while. Call the police in here, Dan. I... Where are they? Are you kidding? Lieutenant Kling is probably saving his Betty by. May I? I gotta sit down. You see, Susie, they weren't satisfied with 15 million. They wanted Uncle Roger's money, too. Which they would have had if that frame had worked. Uh-huh. Hey, what are you doing? What do you got there? A new camera. It's got a wonderful gadget on it that lets me get in the picture. All I do is press this button and... Oh, here, I'll show you. 
We'll bo- both down the light. Do you like this? And oh, this. no. Not again. Good night, Susie. Next week, same time, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Alan Ladd appears through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures. Watch for him in his latest picture, Saigon. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville with an original story by Russell Hughes and original music composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker and that of Lieutenant Kling by Edmund MacDonald. John Beale played Roger Jameson. Production is supervised by Vern Karstensen. This is a Mayfair production from Hollywood. Time for the Abbott and Costello Show. We're on the air for ABC here in Hollywood. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go with the Abbott and Costello Show. Hey, Abbott. Abbott, look, I got a telegram from one of our listeners. He heard me playing the part of Sam Shovel on last week's show. Well, what did he say? Read it. It says, Dear Mr. Costello, your playing of Sam Shovel, the detective, on last week's program was thrilling. I listen to your show with my ear glued to the radio. We'll be at the studio tonight to congratulate you in person. Mr. Costello, there's a man out here to see you. What does he look like? He's a tall, thin guy with a radio glued to his ear. (laughs) Never mind him. Is there any more fan mail, Luke? Yes, here's a letter that says, Dear Luke Costello, I think you are the greatest comedian in the world. Your acting as Sam Shovel, the detective last week, was simply wonderful. I think you are the sweetest man in the world. I love you. Wait a minute. Who wrote that letter? It's signed C-O-U-E-R-S-O. How do you like that? I can't even read my own writing. <laughs> Mr. Costello! Mr. Costello, I want to thank you. You saved my life. What do you mean, Costello saved your life? I'm a radio actor. I haven't worked in six years. I haven't eaten for weeks. I'm destitute. Last Wednesday night, I was about to end it all. I was about to throw myself under a bus. Then a car came by with a radio turned on, and I heard your program. You were playing Sam Shovel, the detective. And that saved my life. Listening to my program saved your life? Yeah, if a jerk like you can get away with that garbage, anybody can make a living. Castelli, you've got to give up the idea of doing those uh, Sam Shovel detective stories on this program. You were detective. <laughs> what would you do if you came face to face with a killer? I'd run the other way. <laughs> That's my strategy. Your strategy? Yes. I'm going around the world and attack him from the rear. <laughs> well, suppose it was a girl crook. She's got big blue eyes and a gorgeous figure. Would you pinch her? Yes, sir. And I'd arrest her, too. <laughs> Costello, you're not brave enough to play the part of Sam Shovel, a detective. Oh, no? I can prove that I'm brave. See these bullet holes in my chest? Once a mob of gangsters came at me with guns blazing. But I kept advancing and advancing. That's how you got the bullet holes in your chest? Yes, sir. Tell me more. Sit down. I can't. I also retreated. I... <laughs> All right. 
There's no use arguing with you, Costello. If you insist on doing another episode of uh, Detective Fame Shovel, let's get started. Come on. And now for our murder mystery, Sam Shovel, Private Detective. Yes, I'm Sam Shovel. <laughs> Shovel it, Sam. Finest work you've done in years. Worst chance I've had to get on. I'm Sam Shovel, private detective. I'm sitting in my little office with my feet on the desk. Suddenly I notice my toes are slowly turning blue. Taking my feet out of the inkwell, I glance at the calendar. Suddenly I realize that I haven't slept in 14 days. But that doesn't bother me. I sleep nights. <laughs> Suddenly I feel dizzy. My head is spinning. No wonder my hair is caught in the electric fan. <laughs> Looking on my desk, I see a strange sight. A cigarette is smoking in the ashtray. I've seen cigarettes smoking before, but this one is smoking a pipe. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a knock on the door. The phone rang. Somebody is knocking on the phone. Hello, same shovel. It's Detective Abbott of the Homicide Squad, the man who single-handed smashed the notorious Red Gang, Red Wing. <laughs> then he smashed the Yellow Ring. Then he broke up the Black Ring. Then they threw him out of the jewelry store. He was busting too many rings. Ma'am, what's that horrible smell in this office? That last joke. <laughs> that you're reading, Sam? It's a new detective story called Double Murder at the Liquor Distillery, or When a Body Meets a Body Coming Through the Rye. <laughs> Lieutenant Abbott, this next line is ridiculous coming from me to you. I'll accept it. I know you will. <laughs> Lieutenant Abbott, can I offer you a drink? Don't mind if I do. <laughs> Abbott took a couple of shots. <laughs> Sam, somebody threw a rock through that window, and there's a note tied to it. Quick, read it. As for broken windows, call us, Excelsior Glass Company. <laughs> Lieutenant Abbott, I'd like to discuss my latest case with you. Sit down on that swivel back chair. I don't see any swivel back chair. Mm-hmm. Swivel must have taken it back. <laughs> what was that? 
Somebody's been shot just outside the door. Let's see who it is. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll come back next week. Please stay safe and do all the stuff that the CDC says for you to do, and so you will be back next week because it means a lot to me. In fact, it means the world to me. Thank you. <laughs>